fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. How you doing, Manila? Our voice is a little off this morning, guys, so apologize. Oh, I'm drinking I, some yeah, tea I hear that. And, um, and some, what is it called? Tea and honey. And screaming. Is that what it is? You're no, no. Raving. It, it happens sometimes. That's, that's the thing. When you don't sleep well, you're wide awake. You're good. When you do, it screws with you in the mornings. It's like, because you have to still yeah, yeah. Uh, get like your Yeah, like I was saying the other day, I was like, oh, on Monday? Yeah. I thought, oh, man, I have to drag. Oh, I just got some sleep. Yeah. Now I have to get up. Don't get me wrong, I'm wide awake. It's just my voice is Your voice off. is strained. Pretty much. How you doing this morning? Doing okay. Now, I'm trying to source the the source of a picture right. that was sent to me. Because if this picture is true, ladies and gentlemen, we have entered the war with China. The meme wars. Meme wars. A meme was allegedly allegedly posted by the Chinese foreign ministry that I found pretty fascinating. I can't find it on their Twitter. Right. I'm not sure where my friend set, found this photo. Yeah. But it's pretty inflammatory. That's an understatement. <laughs> That's an understatement. That's an understatement. It's one of those things of like, this is what you think you are versus this is what right. you actually are. Right. And There's a lot of yes. pictures with captions and and one of them depicts, you know, that America thinks of itself as Superman. And then here's what it really is. Yes. And, and it's the, what the really is part is inflammatory. Right. So. So. Uh, we we need to source that. I've asked the producers to help track down this photo because I'm sure my friend is not awake. Yeah. But when I get up to see my slew of text like, messages oh overnight. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right. I went, no. Here's the rub, though. I don't put it past governments to do that. To be this petty? Yeah. Or to do the thing that the China's... That, yeah. Because, I mean, think about We have been putting out memes talking about China has been committing genocide. I mean, what's his name? Bob, yesterday, said the same thing. He's like, oh, we're not Xinjiang province and committed genocide. Is there a reality to it? No. But no, no, here's the thing. Is if this, in fact, came out of the Chinese Foreign Ministry's official account... Explosive. That, yeah. I mean, they have recently, I don't know if anyone's looked at their Twitter or, or I don't know, whatever social media yeah. platforms that they're on, um, but they have engaged in a little bit of memeing. Yes. A little bit, a little dabble. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't entirely shock me. Too yes, a little little dabble has happened. Yeah. But nothing this... Extreme. This inflammatory. This is definitely inflammatory. Especially coming up to the State Department from China in that way. I mean, the foreign ministry, I'm sorry. I, I would love to see, though, if this was real. Yeah. If this is... If this is I'm skeptical until meme. I see it come out of the right. thing. I, I need to verify the it's photo. It's so big. However, if this, in fact, came out of the Chinese foreign ministry's office on their official account somewhere, I want more. to see how Tony Blinken would reply to this. Will he take the so-called Michelle Obama high road? Will he have his 20-year-old intern come up with a different meme and lob a bomb back? It'll be both. You think so? I think he'll come up with a high road, like, oh, we're not going to dignify this with a response. And, of course, they're going to have their memes in the background where they go after China. I think the meme war has commenced. I mean, I don't know if that's coming from um thing, but meme war, look, 
memes are part of it. Look, in social media- It is soft power. Yes. Memes are now soft power. Yes, when you have social media and social media has as much influence and reach into the masses. Like, just think about it. Like, it's one thing if I come on TV and I try to talk to you, okay, that's one thing. You may ignore me and anything else. A meme is subversive. It's like, it seeps into your mind. Like the Let's Go Brandon stuff. It sticks in your crawl. Yes, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just there, And it just you remember works. the image. Yes, and the message, so, what they're trying to get across. Right, it, I mean, memes are very impactful. Yes. And there's a reason why a lot of um, Secret Service and stuff work online in the shadows of the social media, the anonymity of social media. You think I they're think some of them are, yeah. I think some of them are. If the goal is to get something stuck into your mind on something, yes. Oh, yeah, this is, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, we could ask John Kiriakou about this. He would say, I guarantee, I'm I will sure. put money down. Then he would say yes. I'm sure the CIA has like a meme department. I'm not even joking. Like I, I, I'm laughing about it, but I don't, I don't think that's I wouldn't be shocked by un, untrue. No. I think there has to be like an, uh, an online department. Yeah. Part of PSYOPs. Has to be. There has to be because memes are so, so impactful in this day and age yeah. of just just sticking in your memory and really persuading somebody to start feeling one way or another. Way. Not to mention, think about the effect of a meme in the sense that nobody knows where it started. Right. People just know the meme. But why is that? How yeah. could, like, why can't you backtrack and source who originally posted the meme? Because the rub is the moment that you get to a million people who see the meme, 500,000 people see the meme, who knows where that thing started? Like, meaning the person who Tweets it, tweets it, tweets it, tweets right, it. everybody, yeah. Likes it, tweets it again. Like at a certain point, you're like, like okay, we have no idea what this comes right, from. Right, it starts out as a JPEG, then yeah. it becomes like another type of file, and yeah. then it gets tweaked on. Then Somebody it's a put screenshot. a message on top of it. Yeah. Right, then it becomes a screenshot, so literally the file changes. And oh, I think the producers have an update. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh oh. Producer Bridget, hold on, hold on. They tracked it down? Let's see, I asked her to track it down. Hold on. Let's see, I am skeptical. Hold on here. Bear with us here. Came from China, but let's see. Okay, let's see who's, if it's the, the official account, Our producer are gonna give us. It says Twitter, but is it? Oh, it's a Chinese government official. Holy okay. smokes. Okay. So it's oh. not, but it's not no, the no, foreign it, ministry. But it's not the ministry itself. But oh, Li Zhao. He tweeted us? He tweeted. All right, if you folks wanna know what we're talking about, I can now, we can now say it because Producer Bridget has verified it is on I'm the official this. the official blue check mark Twitter of Li Jian Zhao Zhao Z H A O Mr. Zhao and it says everyone needs a clear understanding of himself so does a nation uh yeah I it, it's a lot of pictures so I'm not gonna go ahead and go through every single one but the last photo ends with the Twin Towers on 9-11. And it says, what I actually do under it. Woo! The meme wars have started. Yeah. All that, right. That's shocking that he, wow. Okay. So, Tony Blinken, what you got? Balls in your court, bro. Your Ta move, buddy. Time for the dance-off. Wow. Time for the dance-off. That's... Zhao. Has, Zhao is the spokesman. He has done his break dancing, I and mean, he's now popping, locking, he's looking at Blinken, he's putting the Blinken. Zhao is the spokesman for the foreign ministry. So yes. this is as close to the, the the actual foreign ministry itself, like He could say, the department. I'm doing this on my own. Right, but he's the spokesman. But you're the spokesman of the department, bro. So... And it even says, it says Chinese government official, spokesman DDG, information department, mm. foreign ministry of China. 
Hmm. Meme wow. war. All right. Okay. So the meme war has begun. America is at the meme war with China. I really think we should just have dance-offs for this stuff. Like, why do we should. need to have this level of back? It'd be far more entertaining if Zhao came out and started spitting on his lips. And then he pointed to Blinken, and Blinken puts his cardboard box down and starts breakdancing on the corner. Blinken got no skills. Come on, let's go. I don't know, man. He has a fat face, but you'd be surprised. I, yeah, that's true. Some people surprise you. You're like, wait, this stiff knows how right. to breakdance? Right, <laughs> right, right. Hold on. Right. It's like Blinken, I, I, I got to give him props. I had no I'm, idea he had that much style. That fat face, spitting on his lips on that fat face. Good I'm job. I'm fucking shocked right now. I'm Okay, I got to get to headlines, yeah. but... That, okay, we just verified it. It is surprising that that's coming out. It of, is verified. Yeah. I know, And I know people are going to say, oh, this is, you know, the what the post-Trump era has brought us. Like, it has made everything undignified. And people are like, now we're engaging. Government officials are engaging in meme wars. But I, I'm not going to put this squarely at the feet of Trump. No, I'm This not. is just where society is. Yeah. This is just who we are now as a people, as mankind. Yes. This is how we fight now with memes and by the way and the, bombs but you know they memes. always evolved to whatever the medium is right right because if you think of radio for example you get fireside chats in the u.s you get hitler giving these high you, you know, these intense wells. features you get right. orson wells's war of the world yes all of that stuff and then and then that spawned like the, the martian out. you know martian attacks yes. like everywhere like oh the martians are here so that I, mean, I guess my point yeah. is social media is just as right for that level of combat as anything else, especially because, again, it's one thing. Fair game is what you're It's saying. fair game. If All I right. give a speech and you know that speech comes from me, you may hate me because I gave you that speech. For a meme, you have no idea. It's, it just soaks into you in a way, and it gets all of these other people. Think about Let's Go Brandon and how far that went. Yes. I mean, in no time. And that's a hit on Biden directly. Right. Nobody knows where it's, well, they know where it started, this but is, it's still, it propagates. The social media wars. That's begun. This, is, this has begun, and this impacts the way people think and feel about politics. And uh, this new meme by Mr. Zhao. Holy smokes. All right, with that, let's head over to the morning news quickies. All right, over in Afghanistan, police have confirmed that at least 21 people have been killed and 33 others have been injured in an explosion at a mosque north of Kabul just the day before. Then in the UK, over 65% of the UK Conservative Party members intend to vote for Foreign Secretary Liz Truss to become the next Prime Minister and Tory leader, according to a joint poll by YouGov and Sky News. That was published today. Then some domestic news. The majority of Americans either strongly or somewhat oppose President Biden's foreign policy, according to the results of an economist slash YouGov poll released Wednesday night. Even among Democrats, one in five do not support Biden's handling of the world, while independents are more in line with the Republicans, according to the survey. Only 16% of the 1,500 adult U.S. citizens surveyed said they, quote, strongly approve of the way Biden is handling foreign policy. Another 25% say somewhat approve. 41% uh, total, I guess, combination of the two, at least sort of meh, meh, find it meh. Meanwhile, 37% strongly disapprove and 14% somewhat disapprove. Their combined total is 51%. When the question was narrowed down to 
the 1,312 registered voters, disapproval, general disapproval, rose to 53%. And Biden's support crept up a little bit to 42, but still people, most people are not happy with him. And two former U.S. judges have been ordered to pay a whopping 206 million bucks in civil court damages for apparently taking kickbacks from a builder of for-profit jails to send hundreds of kids to lockup. Now, this story is outrageous. These two Pennsylvania ex-judges, Mark Ciavarella and Michael Conahan, they have to pay more than $106 million in compensatory damages, $100 million in punitive damages to around 300 victims, according to a ruling on Wednesday by a U.S. district court in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The two men were previously convicted on criminal charges in connection with this scheme, though Conahan was released to home confinement last year because of the COVID pandemic. So under the so-called Kids for Cash scandal, Sia Varela and Conahan shut down a county-operated juvenile detention center and took about $2.8 million in bribes from the developer of two for-profit jails called PA Child Care and Western PA Child Care. So according to testimony in that civil lawsuit, the judges sent children as young as eight years old to these for-profit prisons, in many cases for such petty offenses as jaywalking or smoking on school grounds. So shame on those men. And then abroad, the Russian Ministry of Defense, the MOD, has stated that Kiev is preparing a provocation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant during the UN Secretary General's visit to Ukraine on Friday. Quote, on August 19, the Kiev regime is preparing a false flag attack at the Zaporizhia NPP during a visit to Ukraine by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. As a result of this provocation, Russia will be accused of creating a man-made disaster at this power plant. That's coming from Russian MOD spokesman Igor Konashenkov talking to reporters today. He added that on August 19, units of the 44th Artillery Brigade of the Armed Forces of Ukraine plan to launch artillery strikes on the territory of the Zaporizhia NPP from firing positions located in the city of Nikopol. Now, speaking of the Chinese, the Chinese Ministry of Trade said on Thursday that Beijing is, quote, resolutely opposed to trade talks between Washington and Taipei, which are due to be held under the auspices of the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on the 21st century trade. The ministry's spokesperson, Xu Juting, told reporters that the One China principle is the prerequisite for Taiwan to participate in overseas economic cooperation. Xu added that Beijing calls on Washington to, quote, properly handle trade relations with Taipei and respect China's core interests. The spokesperson pledged China would do its best to, quote, safeguard national sovereignty, security, and development interests. Then on August 18, workers of Network Rail, several train companies, 
The London Underground and buses in the capital will begin the latest round of strikes due to disputes over pay, their jobs, and the conditions around them. Members of the Rail, Maritime, and Transport, the RMT Union, will strike on both Thursday and Saturday. Meanwhile, London Tube Workers will strike on Friday, and London United Bus Drivers plan to strike from Friday all the way to Saturday. Now, amid the strike, travel will be hampered as rail and bus services will be substantially reduced. And some Earth science news here. The prevailing theory among scientists is that around four and a half billion years ago, when the Earth was still forming and was covered in molten lava, it was struck by an object thought to be roughly the size of Mars. They're calling it Thea. It is believed that Thea was destroyed in the process and Earth lost a significant portion of its mass. The gravitational pull of the rem- of the remains of Earth then held debris from the event in its orbit, which quickly, perhaps in less than 100 years, so quickly, you know, in the span of time, <laughs> 100 years, that that's what formed the moon. Now, thanks to new research coming from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, we have more evidence to back that up. Patricia Will led a group of researchers in studying six lunar meteorites discovered in Antarctica in the early 2000s. And funny news of the day, the Japanese tax service, their version of the IRS, has launched a contest calling on citizens to come up with innovative new ways to revive falling alcohol sales, hoping to encourage young adults to hit the bar more often and give a shot to government revenues. I should take this back. It's not not necessarily the IRS, but I think they do a combination of like anything taxable. Yeah. I should say. The National Tax Agency, the NTA, has dubbed the new campaign Sake Viva. That's like Japanese Spanish, I guess. Sake Viva. After Japan's iconic rice wine calling on anyone aged between 20 years old and 39 to submit I don't know why you only drink up you, no they want business ideas from people aged 20 to 39 I don't know why so Jamal you and I if we live there we couldn't take give part an idea. we couldn't give uh, an idea because I guess great ideas we're, we're old farts and they don't want our ideas uh, they want anyone 20 to 39 old enough to drink to give them some ideas of how to boost the industry that's been lagging in the wake of COVID-19 and declining na- uh, nationwide drinking habits, which is weird because here in America, more people yeah. began to drink, drink during COVID. In Japan, less. I guess they started drinking less during COVID. Which is- Ripple. Ripple does a great thing. When they do- no, no. Like, you know, Ripple has the... Um- those events where people oh, are like events. jumping off oh, of oh, the thing or they're marketing. Yeah. No, your idea doesn't count. You're over 40. But that's a great idea. Stop it. They the don't Red want Bull it. Thing is great. You're over 40. The guy with the Superman thing where he goes <laughs> on it like he's like jumping off. Of, oh, it's so good. Yeah, the guy in the squirrel suit that jumps yeah. out, you know, like yeah. flies. Or some guy was on his sled when they went down and just goes off of a cliff. Or like it's do, so great. Yeah, I love like, those things. Do like a Nagano ski jump. <laughs> right. Like, I, I don't know. All but, of these are good ideas. Take no, that, Japan. Not good ideas, according to Japan. You're too old. And then this day in history, back in 1914, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson issues the Proclamation of Neutrality. In the year 1920, then 22-year-old Representative Harry T. Byrne is the deciding vote on Tennessee's and thus America's ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, allowing women's suffrage after 
Here's the power of a woman, especially mama. His mama sent him a letter changing the way he would vote. So thank you, mama. In 1963, James Meredith becomes the first black student to graduate from the University of Mississippi. In 1969, the Woodstock Music and Art Fair in Bethel, New York, came to a close after three nights with a mid-morning set, famous, made famous by Jimi Hendrix. That is going to do it for your headlines. This Thursday, August the 18th, you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. All right. I want to get into a rather quick monologue. It's not going to take long at all. Um, but I want to get into this notion of finances. And there's a meeting that's taking place with Zelensky, Gutierrez for the United Nations, um, and Erdogan. And the question is, why? 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 And these two things are related to each other. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And there is interesting news afoot. The battle is not necessarily going well for Ukraine, as you guys pretty much know at this point, um, especially if you've been keeping tabs via my show or via Fault Lines or other shows on the network. But beyond that point, there's something interesting that's taken place that I mentioned a while ago. This threat of hyperinflation, where basically Ukraine is having difficulty paying and supporting the war effort. And the money that it's supposed to get from, let's say, the U.S., or for that matter, for Europe, is not coming in at the speed that they basically needed to come in. At one point, Zelensky said, we need $5 billion a month just to keep the lights on. Then it became $9 billion a month just to keep the lights on. And apparently, they only got $1 billion from Europe because the consideration was Germany didn't want to be stuck with the bag. So this meeting is taking place. UN Chief Antonio Gutierrez will meet with leaders of Ukraine and Turkey and Lviv on Thursday following a deal reached last month that allows the resumption of grain exports after Russia's invasion blocked the global shipment supplies. And it wasn't Russia's invasion that did it, but whatever. This part. A spokesman for Gutierrez said the UN Chief Ukrainian President President Volodymyr Zelensky and Turkish counterpart Erdogan will discuss the green deal as well as, quote, the need for a political solution to this conflict. Now, if you are, let's say, part of the Europe and or part of not the Europe, but if you're part of Europe, you know the political consequences that this particular war has had it on your various economies, not to mention you know that you are not winning this war all that well, meaning you realize that there is political and economic destabilization as a direct result of your actions in regards to the land war in Ukraine. Not only did you provoke a conflict, but you now made that conflict dramatically worse for your own global or domestic populations. All right. So then this comes out for Interfax. This came out a day or so ago. And these are basically economists who are calling on Ukraine saying, look, you need to fix your affairs. The statement is actually pretty profound, um, considering that Ukraine is in a war and it has no way to enact any of the measures that they're basically bringing up in this particular document with all of these, quote, renowned economists basically giving economic strategy. And I'm just going to read this because it makes kind of a similar point as the Bloomberg article, but makes it, I guess, a little bit more um, direct. Bloomberg made the point that said Ukraine is losing the ability to basically cover its war efforts. And so it started to just print money. And of course, if you're printing money like that, or if you're devaluing your own currency, the issue of hyperinflation becomes a key and major issue. How do you continue to support a war effort if your currency is basically falling through the 
floor. Right here. It says a prolonged, this is Interfax. A prolonged crisis is becoming increasingly likely, a prospect that calls for a readjustment of Ukraine's macroeconomic strategies. Nine renowned economists or international and Ukrainian economists believe, quote, unless altered, this course will result in a major economic crisis, unquote. Ukrainian media said, citing recommendations issued by the London Center, um, London-based Center for Economic Policy Research. The crisis marathon requires, quote, prudence and caution in public finances, a durable nominal anchor, a resilient financial system, a careful management of external balances, and flexibility and efficiency, and allocation of scarce resources. Various branches of the government must coordinate their efforts to this end, unquote, the economists said. Now, how do you expect them to do that? They're in the middle of a war that they're basically losing. They don't have enough tax revenue to basically support that war effort. The overwhelming majority of their resources are going for the war itself. And the money that they're expecting from Western nations in order to fight to the last dead Ukrainian, well, that money is slow rolling because I suspect many of those nations know that Ukraine is not going to have a chance to A, win the war, but B, how are you going to pay them back after you or whatever you limp out of this conflict as? They already know that part which is why I suspect that money is slow moving. Right here, the economists believe that, first, the Ukrainian government must mobilize more resources to improve its fiscal position. The aim should be to increase the collection of tax revenues and for remaining shortfalls to be financed, preferably through external aid, but if not, through domestic debt issuance and much less reliance on printing money. Quote, controlling and raising the effectiveness of non-military spending is critical for keeping public finances sustainable. Ukraine allies should radically increase economic aid and accelerate its disbursement, they said. Second, according to The Economist, there is an urgent need for a durable nominal anchor. Heavy reliance for money printing to finance government deficits has been unavoidable since the first months after 24 of February. Quote, but if the current reliance on money finance is sustained, inflation already over 20% could easily drift much higher. The aim should be for relatively low inflation, they said. It's as if these economists are speaking at the edge of the world, not necessarily paying to events that are taking place on the ground. How do you expect them to do any of this? It's shocking. Right here. In a time of national mobilization, the main responsibility for attaining price stability falls on the fiscal authority, which can strongly influence inflation through tools it chooses to raise resources for domestic private sector, they said, quote, the government should aim to enhance national savings rather than rely on monetary financing for the set coordination with fiscal authorities. The central bank should implement a flexible framework to support macroeconomic stability. A, mage, a managed float of the exchange rate is consistent with this goal, unquote, they said right here. Third, external imbalances should be addressed through a combination of strict capital outflow controls, um, restrictions on imports and some flexibility in the exchange rate, as well as comprehensive standstill on external debt payments, the economists said in their recommendations. Fourth, although governments during a crisis usually take over the allocation of resources, Ukrainian circumstances call for more market-based allocation mechanisms to ensure cost-effective solutions that do not overburden the state, exacerbate existing problems such as corruption, or encourage untaxed black market activities, they said. To this end, the aim should be to pursue extensive radical deregulation of economic activity, avoid price control, facilitate a productive reallocation of resources, they said. Quote, the government will have to make some difficult choices, the economists said. They're in a war. They're in a war. And this kind of goes to my basic point from the very beginning. If you can't necessarily win a battle, how are you going to win the war? And in this very specific case, you don't even have the money to keep this war going. Now, the catch or the question is, 
Gutierrez making this trip to speak to Zelensky and Erdogan. It was very well known that Erdogan was trying to broker peace between Ukraine and Russia. Is that what he's doing now? Meaning as part of this reason for this particular trip with Zelensky is to basically try to impress upon him, dude, you guys are not winning anything. You're not getting the money that you basically need. Your economy is hitting the skids, potentially going through hyperinflation at some point. They don't want to say the dirty word, but that's clearly implied. And on top of that, the money that you guys basically require to keep the lights on, it's not coming. What do you want to do? You are launching bombs at a nuclear power facility that could adversely affect multiple countries in Europe. What are you doing? I guess my thing is, is this meeting between um, Erdogan, Zelensky, and Gutierrez a means and a way of trying to convince Zelensky, call it a day, bro, call it a day. We'll see. We'll see what comes out of it. Um, at the very least, we know that the previous prime minister that basically lost, Boris Johnson, was completely eh, working along with the West, infinitely responsible for allowing Zelensky to continue this war when they were initially going through peace overtures the first time around. Bojo is gone. European leaders, they know more about what this means from a domestic sense. Is this their way of trying to get an end to this conflict? You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys live in the D.C. area, you can always catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202 521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So we want to jump to the Brazilian elections where Lula da Silva has basically launched his campaign. Right now, he is enjoying a 12-point lead over Ayer Bolsonaro, who's still president of Brazil at this point. And this election is supposed to take place in October. Let's get an idea on what is taking place on the ground. If you remember the first time around, De Silva was put into prison, basically put into a cage in order to prevent him from running in the last election. While well, he is out, those charges have basically been not just dropped, but expunged. And now he has the capability of running for office. And the guy who was the biggest threat to Bolsonaro the first time around is now cleared to run in the race this time around. To have a conversation about this, we're joined with Camilla Escalante. She's a journalist and correspondent and communist reporting in Latin America. Fair enough. Camilla, how's it going this morning? You doing all right? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, guys. So I am fascinated by this election. And I've been fascinated by this election for a few reasons. One is when Lula was put into prison, I was greatly bothered by that. I don't even live there. It was bothered by it. Um, Operation Car Wash and everything else that took place, there was a CIA influence that was revealed in that particular um, operation, didn't necessarily want the quote-unquote dirtbag lefty to get back in office. What's going on currently? Is Lula still enjoying this level of popularity that he had once before? Um, and what are the chances or his chances in the race going forward? Absolutely. He's the single most popular political figure, and the PT is the single largest political force in Brazil. That continues today. Of course, he was extremely popular 
during and after his mandate, not only in Brazil, but internationally. And now the polls that have come out um, around 36 hours around the official start of the campaign, which was on Tuesday, um, show that he not only remains popular and is far ahead of Jair Bolsonaro, but he actually picked up four to five points in the polls in the last week. These are polls that are being conducted on a weekly basis, and they show that, you know, with everything that Bolsonaro is trying to do to try to pick up support, it's actually Lula who's picking up uh, voter intention in the polls while Jair Bolsonaro is remaining the same, remaining stagnant, and the other third and fourth place candidate are also remaining the same. So this is spectacular, but we have about 45 days uh, remaining for the elections. Like I said, the campaign season officially formally kicked off on Tuesday, and we're going to see a very large rally today in the state of Minas Gerais, as well as an even larger rally here where I am in Sao Paulo, um, in the center of the city on Saturday, that will be largely seen as the official kickoff with all of the social movements and all of the major figures of the Workers' Party that support Lula and his bid. Well, here's a quote from Lula. He says, quote, if there's anyone who possessed by the devil, it's this Bolsonaro, unquote. And he basically was taking marks at him for right here. Lula urged voters to punish the incumbent Bolsonaro for his denialist life field response to COVID outbreak that has killed more than 680,000 Brazilians. What are the main topics for this election that are basically being debated? I know COVID has to be one of them in response, but I would imagine there are going to be other issues that are on the marquee. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a housing crisis here. There are mass evictions in the country. There's poverty. Uh, Brazil has returned to the hunger map. There are lots of people who have very scarce and precarious access to regular meals throughout the day. There's unemployment, lack of opportunity for young people, um, and all sorts of other issues having to do with the agrarian um, distribution of land. This is something that Lula is going to have to take care of when he comes into power. And he has very close ties with the social movements that fight for housing and land. And they're going to make sure that he is uh, that, that he continues to receive uh, that pressure from beneath to implement those changes that were largely reversed when the coup took place, the parliamentary judicial coup took place against Dilma Rousseff in 2016. And, you know, this all the all the different works and projects of the Workers' Party were undone over time, beginning with Temer and then under Jair Bolsonaro when he came into power in um, following the elections in 2018. It's very significant that uh, where Lula da Silva decided to kick off the start of the official campaign season, he went to the Volkswagen factory um, in a nearby municipality outside of Sao Paulo. And he actually launched his uh, campaign amid a crowd of thousands of workers of that factory, not um, in a public act in front of you know, thousands of supporters generally, but at a factory where he actually staged and led um, uh, a worker strike in the 80s. And this is actually the municipality where he lives today. But it's very s symbolic that, you know, he wants to take unions and the masses back to power. Oh, Camila, um, let me ask you a, a kind of a combination question between uh, Brazil and Argentina. Um, earlier this year, on an official trip into Europe, uh, President Fernandez of Argentina told the German outlet DW uh, that he thinks of himself as an Argentine Europeanist. <laughs> right. Like, that's a weird thing to say, but OK, fine. Um, <laughs> And then 
And that China, he says, you know, despite being a, a great economic power, has very little cultural ties with Latin America, has no history there. Um, and meanwhile, this is Argentina possibly even considering joining BRICS. The Chinese hosted the BRICS summit this year. Meanwhile, you have Lula in Brazil staging this comeback. And President Xi has recently made remarks about welfareism and laziness through leftist populist movements in Latin America. Now, that, that was meant to be a slight against Argentina um, at this uh, Central Economic Work Conference uh, a couple months back. So seeing as Lula and Argentina's Fernandez, they both lean to the far left, could this sentiment cause a rift between Latin America and China and, and perhaps be something that the U.S. might be able to exploit? There's absolutely no rifts between these governments and the People's Republic of China. On the contrary, they are growing closer and closer together, not only economically and through cooperation and all these infrastructure projects um, and development, but also culturally and in people-to-people exchanges. So it's extremely important you know, that this trend continues. And I believe it is going to continue. Of course, we're talking about two very po- uh, powerful, potentially, economies in very important countries in our region, Argentina and Brazil. But, um, you know, Brazil is already more of an industrialized country compared to, of course, where I'm typically based in Bolivia. And I believe that we're going to see, um, you know, really, really important projects going forward. I don't want to take those comments out of context. But I think, you know, Brazil is going to have to work on, you know, two things. First of all, they're going to have to work internally on, you know, making sure to strengthen and take back uh, the the companies, the state industries and companies that were privatized under these right-wing governments, which is, you know, Petrobras and Electrobras, uh, these, you know, key state companies, and they're going to have to follow the path of countries like Bolivia and Nicaragua that have nationalized their industries. And they're also going to have to, you know, work on their exterior policy. And I think that they're going to, you know, make some really important decisions. And we're seeing, you know, of course, as we talk about every time on this show, um, you know, the United States is use, losing legitimacy in the world, is not as influential, and we're looking, you know, to our neighbors, and we're looking overseas, and China is a very important force. Let me ask you this. So the first time around, Bolsonaro used his military connections in order to threaten the judiciary in order to get them to lock Lula up, basically trying to do it in run um, because he knew he wasn't going to be able to beat him the first time around. Is there any threat associated with that this time around, meaning his military connections, are those— sufficient enough in the way they were the first time around where there's the potential for an extra constitutional power grab. Camila, let me add to that also is that we know Operation Car Wash was manufactured by the U.S. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There is a threat and it is something that people are discussing. Um, They're discussing a number of, you know, possible scenarios in which, um, you know, a sort of coup can take place before the October 2nd elections. One of them is that on September 7th, Brazil is celebrating the bicentennial of independence. And there's going to be this big, you know, act to mark the day, uh, commemorating the date in Brasilia, which is the capital. And uh, Bolsonaro, as well as probably, uh, you know, the left-wing forces are going to be participating in those commemorative acts. Um, You know, there's a lot of rumors about what could potentially take place, but the same sort of thing happened last year. And there was no, you know, terrorism. Bolsonaro wasn't able to stage some sort of coup They do kind of hijack the commemorations and try to put like a far right nationalist spin on things. 
But we've, you know, yet to see any of that. But, you know, there's also talk about whether, uh, you know, Bolsonaro and his allies could try to stage a coup after the vote comes in, after the first round Well, correct me if I'm um, wrong. Of the Bolsonaro election. said he wouldn't necessarily accept a loss, that if he loses, he had to be cheated for the loss. Exactly. That, I think the main ways that he has so far, uh, you know, tried to manipulate the situation is by casting doubt through, you know, a propaganda information war, uh, casting doubt on the legitimacy of the electoral system, casting doubt on the electoral authorities, um, and try to, trying to spread disinformation far before the vote even takes place. So that is a concern. Yeah, and he doesn't get the nickname Trump of the tropics for nothing, right? Like, this is a very Trumpian move to get ahead of of um, this, what people expect to be a landslide victory, or at least they expected a couple, couple just a couple weeks ago that Lula uh, would take. So it, it's, but Lula, unlike Biden, is extremely popular. You know, I, I get why a lot of people don't believe that that Biden ran away with this election. I, I get that, and especially seeing his polls right now. Um, I can get I get why some people would believe President Trump saying what he said. But in the case of of Lula, he is still extremely popular. A lot of people were angry about Operation Car Wash. They were happy. I mean, not happy about him getting locked up and then, you know, the, the ascension of Bolsonaro. And I think on the on the world stage, Lula has kind of been fearless about standing up against what the the U.S. is doing in the way of this proxy war. Can you talk to us a little bit more about where he stands on this? Because he he's the, the comments I've heard coming out of him so far is that he's kind of tacitly standing with Russia. He does. He has attempted to take. I think what he and the his party considered to be somewhat of a neutral position, which is not so overtly in favor of, you know, Russia and its military operation in Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're, Lula and his talking points are most, more focused on, you know, the ways in which we can overcome all of the different issues having to do with inflation, having to do with, you know, not, no, having no control of our currency and introducing a Latin American currency that would be led by Brazil. Like you said, he was the target of lawfare uh, in 2018, in which he was locked up in a prison in Curitiba in the state of Paraná. And you had thousands of people outside demanding his release, uh, you know, demanding transparency. And now he's back. This is a polarized, um, you know, political climate. Um, I'm not really sure how we can try to compare things to the United States. But in the case of Bolsonaro, he's not trying to sugarcoat things with social uh, justice talk or anything like that. Bolsonaro's supporters really do, in fact, stand for things like, you know, they are openly Islamophobic, openly homo- homophobic. Um, and, you know, they have a lot of uh, fascist talking points right at the tip of their tongue that they're not holding back on. So it's a very extremely polarized situation. And Lula, of course, is, you know, very close to the different social movements around the country. And so I think, you know, even those who supported Bolsonaro in 2018 are seeing that their material conditions have, in fact, declined here in the country and that there is, you know, less and less, uh, you know, hope for them going forward. And they're thinking about Lula and they're thinking about third candidates as well. From your standpoint, how would this affect the larger region? Meaning if Lula takes this election, you're going to get another left wing president of a South America country, especially a major one at this point. Brazil is huge. How's that going to affect other countries? So let's say, for example, Cuba, let's say for, um, Nicaragua, for example, even how would it affect South America in general? 
wow, it's going to have, you know, it's going to have all sorts of effects. Um, going back to, you know, the Manila's last question, um, militarily, it could have an immediate impact. We have the United States installing all of these Southcom bases around our continent, specifically in its close, you know, the United States close allies in South America, which have been, you know, Colombia, Guyana, Brazil. And now we're going to have a leftist government that's not going to allow the U.S. to continue encroaching on our lands and territories. And we're going to have, you know, there's going to have to be a little bit of a reform and some changes made to the Brazilian military. But it could have an immense impact, um, you know, economically in the sorts of, you know, cooperation and economic sort of, uh, you know, multi, multinational or multi-government uh, organizations in our region. And very importantly, we might be able to see the restoration of diplomatic uh, relations and the improvement of relations between the Brazilian government and the Bolivarian government of Venezuela, which would be extremely important in terms of the hostilities that, you know, that exist on that extremely large and porous border between the two countries. Camilo, do you think economics is really the key here across Latin America? Because it looks like, you know, obviously the B in BRICS stands for Brazil, but Argentina is looking to join. There are some people in Europe that have argued, you know, oh, that's a dumb idea, that there's no room for a second Latin American country in BRICS. Then you have Iran thinking about joining, Saudi Arabia thinking about joining. So it sounds to me like there's a lot of movement coming out of the global south do you think that's overall, you know, an economic rejection of Western policies? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, once again, these countries that are led by, um, you know, socialist governments are trying to seek out ways with the neighboring countries to become resilient to the types of things that we're seeing geopolitically in the world um, in the way in which um, largely countries like Bolivia under the movement towards socialism have not been uh, you know, pulled in one direction and seen large, um, you know, inflation numbers or instability. They've been able to maintain a level of economic stability in their country to where, you know, the cost of bread and the cost of meat is exactly what it is a year ago. That's the sort of thing that Brazil wants to lead and implement in the region. And so I think, yeah, that, that's exactly key. From your standpoint, what do you think this is going to turn out to be going forward, especially if there's going to be some kind of, I guess, South American architecture? And I don't mean in a sense of like a European Union or something like that, but with so many left-wing governments taking power in South America, will this create this kind of, I guess, a political unity among the South? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a very interesting question because things are changing very quickly. You know, we just had... um, Gustavo Petro sworn into the presidency uh, about two and a half weeks ago. So we're just beginning to see all the changes that he's he's making. In the first seven days of the Petro presidency, he was, you know, sending a presidential delegation to Havana to restart the, the talks between the Colombian government and the ELN. We're seeing all sorts of changes quickly with the reopening of the border between Venezuela and Colombia, with the reestablishment of trade relations. So we really have to see what is going to take place. We're seeing that, you know, the countries that are very closely allied with Washington, which are countries like Uruguay, Paraguay, are in the minority. They're smaller countries and they don't yield a lot of influence. And it really doesn't matter what they do or don't do in terms of their cooperation relations with countries overseas. Whereas we're seeing 
at the same time, we're seeing countries, you know, like Colombia and Venezuela start speaking to each other again, while Venezuela is opening up um, air bridges and they're, um, you know, they're launching, you know, flights and other things between countries like China, like Iran. So we're going to start seeing, you know, things changing extremely quickly. And we have to wait to see, um, particularly in the next couple of days with Lula and his campaign events, to see what sort of things he begins announcing. Um, you know, obviously he's going to be very cautious because he knows that he has um, that he has a lot of support right now. So he doesn't have to go too far or be too explicit. But going back to, you know, what we started with, which was the polls, According to the valid votes, and of course the polls only look at the uh, the votes including those that are not valid. It includes the the null votes, the blanks, and the I don't knows. But if we actually look at the valid votes, Lula is has more than half of the votes. He has all um, his total equals the total of all of the other candidates combined. So he's in a very strong position. So I don't think he's going to go too far. He's just going to continue what he's doing. Um, in the next six weeks or so. Can we move over real briefly um, to Bolivia? Um, because we've seen in, in the West that they're back to criticizing the government of Arce. They're saying the 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 coca, I'm not sure if the coca or cocoa, cocao. <laughs> I can't say, I can never say this. The growers are protesting and they're accusing the government of opening new markets. They're hurting um, regular people. What's the economic climate like over there in Bolivia? Yeah, I mean, the, co- the coca growers or the cocaleros of Bolivia are largely with the government. Overwhelmingly, uh, something like over 90 percent of the people who are traditional indigenous growers of coca support the movement towards socialism and actually form the base of the movement. And of course, with the you know, traditional Bolivian oligarchy, Um, and the large landowners, which still exist in Bolivia, they tend to pay off small communities to try to join their far-right struggle in which they're trying to bring back a system of colonialism, essentially. And so what we're seeing in the news replicated, unfortunately, is that, you know, these small groups of coca growers who are aligned with the far-right are trying to destabilize the government. Um, And it's, you know, it's something that has been taking place since before the 2019 coup. And we're going to see more of that. And unfortunately, you know, the mainstream and foreign media picks up on that and doesn't really see the, you know, that in fact, the coca growers struggle largely in the 90s and the early 2000s was led by these socialists and not these destabilizing right wing forces. Um, you know, they have nothing to, to protest against in Bolivia. The, like, like I said before, you know, there has been the lowest inflation in all of the Americas, all of the continent, that's North, Central and South America and the Caribbean. Bolivia has the lowest inflation since the very beginning of this special military operation in Ukraine. The Bolivian government completely froze the cost of gas and diesel. So we have not seen a single increase in the price of fuel. And many other things are subject to price controls. So, you know, people are seeing a, a recovery of the demo- of sorry since the recovery of democracy in 2020 when Luis Arce took office we saw a recovery of the economy um, and since covid of course and they are you know, taking back control of the industries and companies that were being privatized under the coup 
And there's a very positive economic outlook that has been recognized by international institutions and by the governments of other countries. They've received praise from Mexico and many other countries who have recently uh, sent official delegations to Bolivia. So things are very positive. And because things are so positive, the far right has to invent reasons, uh, even doing weird, you know, cultural war stuff um, to try to destabilize the country because they have nothing else to go on. Speaking of destabilizing the country itself, I want to get your larger take. We have about four minutes left. And I want to get your take from the standpoint of a global South, as opposed to basically what has taken place in Ukraine. Um, the BRICS nations, as Manila kind of alluded to, you have all of these other countries that are basically trying to join. Turkey, um, Iran, Saudi Arabia, at one point even even come up. What does this mean? And from the standpoint of the way Europe is basically taking this kind of hit democratically and economically in comparison to, let's say, the global South that seems to be somewhat ascendant right now, moving into this kind of secondary economic system of the world. How are how is how is the global South looking at Vince across the globe itself? I know that's a big question, but I'm trying to get into the mindset of what is the South thinking about in the way that the world is basically changing? It is very, it's a very big and important question, but I think, you know, it's very important that now that people are beginning to see the truth about what took place in Venezuela that was led by the far right sectors, the that, you know, are in bed with Washington and Miami when they tried to, you know, install a uh, Washington-picked leader. Now people are pushing against that. And I think it's very important to see whether or not more countries are going to, uh, are going to reject the sanctions and actually, you know, trade with these different countries that have been sanctioned. There's over 30 U.S. Uh, illegally sanctioned countries. And these countries are very important to international trade. So not only do we need, you know, new sovereign currency systems for the global South and Latin America in particular, but we also need to see, you know, more countries rejecting these European U.S. imposed, uh, you know, sanction regimes because these are such important um, economies for our region. Um, I think the Caribbean specifically um, and CARICOM, the Car Caribbean community, has called for the lifting of sanctions on the oil sector of Venezuela. That's extremely important because they were pretty much silent um, on this entire issue. And now they're realizing that through the Petro-Caribe program, Venezuela can actually provide fuel for an entire continent and specifically for the Caribbean. So instead of joining forces with the OAS and the U.S., that we should actually be rejecting the system and looking for other, you know, polars, other world powers to actually provide for the other countries that are struggling right now. It's very interesting, you know, what you're saying about Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and other countries wanting to join because the potential is, uh, is you know, w would mean, could mean all sorts of things for, you know, securing energy for our entire region um, and, you know, and, and surpassing those, those draconian sanctions. Last question, one minute left. What would you say the relationship would look like if Lula wins in Brazil? How is he going to deal with the United States? Because I'm pretty sure he has an axe to grind. Yeah, it is really interesting. I think like in the case of Gustavo Petro and um, even Giomara Castro, I do think that these, you know, candidates that that um, enjoy a large, uh, you know, a large support base are not trying to go too far 
and they're not trying to go on the attack, on the offensive against the United States, at least until they get into power. They're going to try to maintain a relationship there for as long as they can because they know that they have the upper hand. They just, you know, the goal right now is to get into power and then, you know, form a government and try to make, you know, those changes over time because it's not going to be an overnight process and they're going to face a lot of hostility and a lot of attempts to overthrow the government. So I don't think we're going to see him come out swinging right in the beginning. Camilla, thank you for this. Always appreciate it. Camilla Escalante is a journalist, correspondent and communist reporting from South America, Latin America. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. You know, it's funny. I don't live in Latin America, clearly. Um, (laughs) I've visited a few countries, but all things been equal, when Lula was locked up, I felt, it felt like it. I don't know. It felt like it directly pertained to me. So same thing with Evo Morales. When he got deposed and they basically ran him out, he was running for his life and that type of thing. And the country fell into this kind of cool regime. It's weird how this stuff affects you. And I guess it's the way that media has is is infiltrated everything. Like the moment that something happens, you're there. Like, you know, you can see it on Twitter. You can see it on Facebook. You can see the events on the ground. You see all of that stuff almost immediately in a way that that was just never true before. Yeah. So having those conversations with Camilla kind of brings this stuff home in a in a I guess in a more real way of what's taking place on the ground from perspective for I people on the ground. She's a, an American citizen, right? U.S. citizen. I, think I don't so. think so. But I mean, she I mean, she sounds like she's from here and yeah. moved over there. Now that's a good question. I don't know because so I've only ever seen it from Teleser. When she used to give the broadcasts and everything else, and she used to give a rundown on the events that were taking place. That's where I know her from. Yeah, it, it sounds... And News was another one. Yeah, it sounds... She sounds like she is American and, and like is an expat, expat yeah. out out in South America. So yeah. it's, it's interesting to see if that's the case. Um, at the very least, she spent probably the bulk of her life here because she sounds American. Yeah. Um, but to hear her perspective from being here and then over there... To con- compare and contrast. Yeah, um, I'm always fascinated by that. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's so it's so interesting to hear American expats in X Y Z country. Yeah, because they they know what it's like here. Yes, they go over there and it's like, oh, you like that better? Hmm. They get a larger context for that stuff. Have you ever lived anywhere abroad for like a year or two? Yeah. Where have you lived? I lived in Dubai. Remember? Well, I know you lived in Dubai, but I didn't know how long you lived in Dubai. Several years. Wow. Okay. What was your experience looking at? the two countries in coming out? Because I know at one point you say you left because they were threatening you based on the reporting on something that you were trying to... Oh, okay. So, yeah, there are a lot of things that I I prefer not to get okay, into. So we, don't, we won't touch that. We'll we're touch not, that. We're not going to get into that. Okay. But I will say when... At some point, you when you first get there, it's so jarring with how... Obviously, just the cultural differences. Of course. So your brain is trying to, you know reconcile that then then when you learn like how just things are done right it's partially partially a societal thing partially a cultural thing but then you're like wait the government makes you do 
what? Wait, what? Yeah. So if you, you know, for me, it was, it was still like, if I thought the U.S. was dysfunctional and we have red tape and bureaucracy to get stuff done over there. Of course, it's a much young, much younger country. Right. Much, 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 much younger country. And it, um, you know, people for, for all intents and purposes, it is still a developing nation because right. people think of just Dubai, the one emirate within the UAE. Yeah. Um, they think of the buildings right, and that that's type it, stuff. The glitz yeah. and glamour. For the most part, most of the UAE is still very rural and undeveloped. Um, you know, a lot of sand dunes, yeah. just spots here and there, Abu Dhabi, you know, mm-hmm. small old cities, small port cities, and not everything is is readily available for you. Yeah. Like if you're like, well, back then, back then there were no street names. Wow. No street. So take that into account, right? Yeah. For local governance. There were no street names. It's like near the post office right. and around the corner like there's store. There's a pink building yeah. with the name Jumbo on it. Turn yeah. right at yeah. that at that roundabout. Take the first wow. right at the roundabout. No, take the take the then you go to the next roundabout. Take the third exit on that roundabout. <laughs> it was the it was worst. Like, yeah. So there was stuff like that where again, it was still a developing nation when yeah. I when I was living there. I mean, we're close to 20 years ago. That's a severe culture shock yes. between those so things. So that yeah. alone, where I was like. Dude, government officials, what are y'all doing here? You didn't put street names up? Like, <laughs> help us out here. How do you tell people to get anywhere? And then things were getting delivered. No no post office. Well, there is a post office, uh-huh. but there's no, like, USPS type thing. There's no, the mailman doesn't come to your house. Interesting. You still had to go to the post box. Interesting. Like interesting. the whole damn city. And most of us were expats from Western countries. Yeah. And completely unfamiliar. Yeah. So you're like, oh. And then it's not like a post box like you have here at the post office. You just go open your box. And yeah. Like you have to go to the counter and be like, this is my box. And they have to. Yeah. It's like this whole thing. So when you think that there are, are stupid things about the U.S. government and how, you know. It's applicable to everywhere, basically. There are dumb things in every place that I have traveled to. But living over there, again, it was still a developing nation almost 20 years ago. Yeah. All these, like, the the Burj Khalifa was not complete. I watched that thing. Oh, being built. Built. It was like watching a little baby building. Now yeah. it's like this giant it's tallest tower right in the yeah. world. Um, so that just goes to show how long ago this was, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe they, most of my friends have left, you know, um... But maybe they have street names now. Maybe yeah. they have a postal service. At the very maybe. least, in the in, the, in um, Dubai, they do. I don't know about the other surrounding parts because I've never been to the surrounding parts. I only went to the main city. So, so interesting. At Abu Dhabi was the same way. Yeah. Um, you go to any of those, like Sharjah, any of the other Emirates. It was the same thing. Nobody had street names. So I was like, how do you guys tell people where you live? Interesting. Like, you just know. So they had just hadn't caught up yet with yeah. with the influx yeah. of. Uh, the population boom, all the travelers, expats, all, all, the, that stuff. all yeah. the travelers coming in, the tourists. So they hadn't just gotten there. Yeah. But I, I like presume. That was like 20 years ago. It was almost so, 20 years ago. Yeah, so, so at was, this point they should I presume they have street names now. The only, I would imagine, yeah. The one street name that they did have was the main road, mm-hmm. the main freeway. Yeah. Which like in California, we'd say the five. Yeah. Or here, the beltway. Right. You know, at least they had Sheikh Zayed Road. So you had one. You had one. Yeah. So basically, that was the main artery. So you're like, okay, if you're coming from Abu Dhabi, you come up 
whatever it was, north or south. I don't remember yeah. the cardinal direction. But you go up, you go up Sheikh Zayed Road. Then you exit at the whatever electronics building. Oh man! And then you that go around rough. the roundabout. Yeah, that's really how it was. Then you'll see this old man, and I'm not making this up and sounding racist. Literally, there by where I lived, there was this old Bedouin man yeah. that had like his little, like little shanty home. Yeah. With a camel. And I guess he's like a neighborhood old man. And he would say, turn at the camel. And you say, turn at the old. You'll see an old man out front. There's a camel chilling outside. Turn there. Literally, like, no joke. Like, wow. that's, yeah. And then no, you I don't go think towards that tower. No, I don't think you're joking. But, I mean, some people that hear this are going to be like, oh, Manila's being racist. She's being, no, no, no I'm being absolutely freaking literal. No, like, when, literal. Look, same, similar experience when I was, I think it was in Egypt or somewhere with, no, it wasn't Egypt, um, Jordan crossing the Israeli border into Jordan and they would say all right there's going to be a group of guys that are standing there yeah. and you're going to have to talk to those guys and get them <laughs> to give you transport and it's like okay this can't be serious yeah. you get there there's a group of guys and they, you would tell them where you want to go and they would say oh they'll negotiate amongst themselves and they'll go with this guy it's yes. that so no I don't think you're being no I think yeah, you're being literal be like oh she's being racist no. talking about Arab stereotypes. No, no, that is literal. I'm being literal. That is very literal. When I lived there, there was this old man that I used as a travel post. Uh, yes, because there's <laughs> no right. street signs. So I'd be like, look for this pink little, you know, shack home. God forbid if that guy, or that camel dies. Right. Like I, I used to joke about that. I was like, no one's ever going to be able to know how to get to my tower right. that I lived in because they won't know where to turn to get to that tower. Like you could see the tower at a far. Yeah. But how do you get to it? Right. How do you? How do, you, well, how do you maneuver through the streets? The old man with the little pink shack with the camel. Crucial. Was my, like, where I told people to turn. Wow. <laughs> I think you're being literal. I mean, it's it's the way that stuff forms out in the Middle so East sometimes. That it's, was really frustrating, was like not having street signs, not having these things that you take for granted. Right. So there are some things that the U.S. government got right. Like, yes. we did oh. really good. We nailed street signs. We nailed street signs. Yeah. In fact, D.C. has too many. Yes. Way yeah. too many. Yeah. So that's the other end of this. Yeah. But, you know, there are, there are things that, that I think us as Americans take for granted. Of course. Like the post office. Yeah. And the trash postal pickup. system. <laughs> Just trash, trash pickup. What if you have any trash? If you're in India and they oh. don't, oh, it's rough. It's rough. Yeah. There, yeah. When you go to the smaller emirates, the less wealthy ones, same thing. There's garbage yeah. everywhere. And you're like... Ooh, Dubai is real pretty, but... Yeah, what about these other parts? Ooh. Yeah. All right, let's get into headlines. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by expats. Because I've never... The longest I've been out of the country was maybe four months, and that's what was going from place to place oh, to place to place. Oh, not in one place. Right. It was like yeah. going from all over the world. Yeah, living so, there several years right. is like... Yeah, and then after a while, you you want to pull your hair out probably the first six, seven months. Yeah. And then after, after that... Becomes more you just normal. accept it. Yeah. You just accept that you got to tell them to turn at the pink shack with the old man with the camel. <laughs> you just accept that's part of your life. You just accept like new foods. Yeah. That you know they're 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 like quasi American. Yeah. Like here we have Safeway. Right. They had a copycat grocery store that had international foods and Amer- a lot of American foods. Yeah. They called it Safest Way. <laughs> I love it. I love that. I love these like knockoff. I was like. Yeah. Safest way. It's not just safe. It's the safest way. Because it's like in Burger King, they don't have because they have a king and a queen. Right. (laughs) Well, it it, was it Australia somewhere. They didn't have like a Burger King. It was a Burger something that was supposed to be like Burger King. But it was like, oh, we have a king and queen here, so we don't want to we don't want to touch that. Um, Yeah, I'm fascinated by that stuff. Thank you for going into that because I'm always fascinated by the expat experience being somewhere else for a long period of time after 
Mm-hmm. And then it's not a democracy. Yeah. So that, you know, there's an absolute rule or, yeah. yeah, like, and there was drama around Shake Mo, as we so lovingly called him Shake Mo, as, you know, but now all this drama's come out. And yeah. I won't get into the royal family drama, but that is, that is fascinating. But he wow. was, I mean, you know, he's he's a king. Interesting stuff. Interesting he's stuff. He's the king of that, that emirate. Yeah. But let's do this. Let's get into the headlines. In the news, the Afghan police confirmed quickie news bites. The Afghan police confirmed on Thursday that at least 21 people have been killed and 33 others injured in an explosion at a mosque in Kabul the day before. Another one, over 65% of UK Conservative Party members intend to vote for Foreign Secretary Liz Truss to become the next UK Prime Minister and Tory leader, according to the joint poll by YouGov and Sky News published on Thursday. I think that was the prediction here also, that Liz Truss was going to win it. And I will be there for that ascendancy on the 5th of um, September. She's a Margaret Thatcher wannabe. Yes, yes. But like worse. Yes, yes. It's like Boris Johnson failed to somebody who's basically going to be just as bad, just if not worse. worse. Yeah, yeah. She's going to be bad. The majority of Americans either strongly or somewhat oppose Joe Biden's foreign policy, according to results from Economist YouGov poll released on Wednesday. Even among Democrats, one in five do not support Biden's handling of the world, while independents are more aligned with Republicans, the survey showed. Only 16% of the 1,500 adult U.S. surveyed said they, quote, strongly approve, unquote, of the way Biden has handled foreign policy, the poll shows. Another 25% somewhat approve for a 41% total. Meanwhile, 37% strongly approve and 14% somewhat of a combined total for 51%. When the question was narrowed down to the 1,312 registered voters, disapproval rose to 53%, while Biden's support crept up to 42%. Own party dislikes it. Let's keep going. Two former U.S. judges have been ordered to pay a $206 million in civil court damages for taking kickbacks from builder of four project jails to send hundreds of kids hundreds of children to his lockups. The Pennsylvania ex-jurist Mark Civarella and Michael Conahan must pay more than $106 million in compensatory damages and $100 million in punitive damages to nearly 300 of their victims, according to the ruling on Wednesday by a U.S. District Court in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The two men were previously convicted on criminal charges in connection with their scheme, though Conahan was released to home confinement last year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Under the so-called Kids for Cash scandal, uh, Cervella and Conahan, or Conahan shut down a county-operated juvenile detention center and took $2.8 million in bribes from the developer of two for-profit jails, Pennsylvania Child Care and West Pennsylvania Child Care. According to the testimony in civil lawsuit, the judge sent children as young as eight to jails, in many cases for such petty offenses as jaywalking or smoking on school grounds. If this is the story, that I think it is. There was one situation where a kid threw a piece of bread at somebody across the dinner table, and the judge in this situation put the kid in jail. This was another one of those cash for kids schemes. This was like years ago though. This might be another scheme that they're talking about, but I distinctly remember schemes like this where the kids are basically, their lives being destroyed because the judge is getting a kickback. Good on them. There is no punishment that would have balanced that out, to be honest. Let's keep going. The Russian Ministry of Defense has stated that Kiev is preparing a provocation at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant during the UN Secretary General Gutierrez's visit in the Ukraine or to Ukraine on Friday. Quote, on August 19th, the Kiev regime is planning a false flag or preparing a false flag attack at the Zaporozhye 
Zaporozhia nuclear power plant during the visit to Ukraine by UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. As a result of this provocation, Russia will be accused of creating a man-made disaster at the power plant, unquote. Ministry or Russian Ministry of Defense, Igor Konoshkinov, told reporters on Thursday. He added that August 19th, units of the 44th Artillery Brigade of the Armed Forces of Ukraine plan to launch artillery strikes on the territory of the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant from firing positions located at the city of Nikopol. That is horrendous. To put it as, a, as an understatement, that is horrendous. The Chinese Ministry of Trade said on Thursday that Beijing is, quote, resolutely opposed, unquote, the trade talks between Washington and Taipei, which are due to be held under the auspices of the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on the 21st century trade. The ministry spokesperson, Xu, I think this is Juating, um, told reporters that the One China Principle is the prerequisite for Taiwan to participate in overseas economic cooperation. Xu added that Beijing calls on Washington to, quote, properly handle trade relations, unquote, with Taipei and, quote, respect China's core interests, unquote. The spokesperson pledged China would do its best to safeguard national sovereignty, security, and developmental interests, unquote. In Earth and Science News, the prevailing theory among scientists is that around 4.5 billion years ago, when Earth was still forming, it was covered in molten lava. It was struck by an object thought to be roughly the size of Mars, known as Thea. It is believed that Thea was destroyed in the process and Earth lost a significant portion of its mass. The gravitational pull of the remains of Earth then held debris from the event in its orbit, which quickly, perhaps in less than 100 years, formed into what we know today as our moon. Now, thanks to new research coming out of Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, we have more evidence to back this up. Patrizla Will led a group of researchers in studying six lunar meteorites discovered in Antarctica in the early 2000s. Super fascinating, super fascinating. In 1914, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson um, issues proclamation of neutrality, quote, unquote. <laughs> he kept us out of the war until he didn't. In 1920, 22-year-old representative Harry T. Byrne is deciding vote is the deciding vote and Tennessee's invests America's ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution allowing women's suffrage after a letter from his mother. After a letter from his mother, mom. In 1963, James Murdoch became the first black student to graduate from the University of Mississippi. In 1969, the Woodstock Music and Arts Fair in Bethesda, or Bethel, New York, wound to a close after three nights with a mid-morning set by the one and only Jimi Hendrix. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. So let's do this. Let's get to our guest, Elijah Magnier. He's always a great guest to talk to. And we're going to have this conversation about Ukraine and China, not to mention Gutierrez basically meeting with Zelensky um, and Erdogan. And what we strongly suspect here is a push for him to basically come to terms. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202 
521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And as I recounted last time, the UN chief, this is France 24, the UN chief Antonio Gutierrez will meet with leaders of Ukraine and Turkey and Lviv on Thursday following a deal reached last month to allow the resumption of grain exports after Russia's invasion, et cetera, et cetera. This part, a spokesperson for Gutierrez said that the UN chief, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Turkish counterpart Erdogan would discuss the grain deal as well as the need for a political solution to this conflict. And of course, part of the reason that Gutierrez is going there is because Ukraine has basically been firing shots at the nuclear power plant, it seems, with the idea of creating some kind of disaster. And this is in line with basically the Russian reports that a disaster is planned, basically a false flag where Russia is going to be blamed for some kind of nuclear disaster. I'd imagine all of that stuff is on the marquee for conversation. To have a conversation about it ourselves, we're joined with Elijah McGay. He's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and of course, Yugoslavia. Elijah, thank you for joining us again. How are you doing this morning? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you for having me again. So I want to get into this meeting that is supposed to take place. Initially, it came out, this was about grain. But of course, it seems that, especially with Erdogan, and Erdogan being instrumental in trying to bring this conflict to a close, that it's very possible that if they're meeting Zelensky, that part of this conversation is going to be about how do we bring this war to a close? You guys are firing shots at a nuclear power facility. Your country is basically potentially going to hit hyperinflation. You can't win a battle. Why are we doing this? Is it going to be that? Meaning, regardless of whatever they cast this conversation as, is it possible or even likely that the conversation that um, Erdogan, and for that matter, Gutierrez, wants to have is how do we bring this to a close? Is that what's taking place? What are your thoughts, Elijah? I think this is one of the most important meetings since uh, February uh, 2022, the beginning of the war between Russia and the United States on the Ukrainian soil. Because uh, as I I wrote in many articles that the United uh, Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres will appear on the Ukrainian arena only when the Ukrainians uh, will start having less effective and when the Americans are more convinced to stop the war. This is when the role of the United Nations is activated. Normally, it is not activated, only when the West is in need to stop the war and find a way to come out of it without saying that we've lost it. That's one. Secondly, for uh, President Zelensky to go to Lviv is on the uh, uh, close to the Polish borders, that is significant because this is where the meeting is going to happen. And this is where the meeting with President Erdogan uh, and President uh, uh, Zelensky is going to take place, which means that uh, President Zelensky is willing to make the step. And that means the Americans are willing to start uh, being a bit more serious about stopping the war, that the outcome it was very obvious from the first beginning. Now, yes, there are many cover stories that we can say the reason of this visit is because of the grain. However, the first 17 ship did not go to Africa that is most in need, but went to wealthy countries like the United Kingdom, Ireland, Turkey, or people who paid money to Ukraine. And Russia allowed that. Secondly, we have the first 
28,000 tons going to Ethiopia, and that was the first shipment that left uh, Kiev. And yes, Turkey is the one coordinating between Russia and Ukraine about how to bring out the 15 to 18 million tons of uh, Ukrainian grain to the world. However, uh, Turkey was involved in peace talk between uh, Ukraine and Russia from the very beginning. But the Ukrainians showed, as the Turkish newspaper said, lack of uh, enthusiasm to talk to the Russian, and they put the uh, level extremely high for the negotiating for the Russian side to refuse by starting to ask the withdrawal of the Russian from Crimea. Now we're talking about 2014. So when you don't want to negotiate, you just ask the impossible and say, well, I'm trying to negotiate, but the other side is not willing. So now it doesn't mean this is the end of the war. Normally it doesn't go like, it doesn't work like that. What, how it works is the beginning of a positive sign on both sides, uh, because the, particularly those who are losing the war don't want to surrender immediately. They want to say, okay, we are willing to negotiate, but under which terms? So we express a goodwill, particularly with the presence of the United Nations that Ukraine is using, well, the, the West is using as a witness to give more credibility to the negotiation. Hence the uh, presence of, the, of Antonio Guterres at the meeting and to talk to Zelensky is to try and put a, a, a facade saying, well, we want to end this war because the Russians are really ending the control of Donbass and we don't want them to go somewhere else. Secondly, Zaporozhia. Yes, the nuclear plant is not really in danger. Otherwise, we would have seen the International Atomic Energy Organization running immediately when the Ukrainians are saying that they prevent the UN team from going and visiting the site because any military expert with their very little expertise will know where the source of uh, bombardment and uh, uh, the type of bombs or record, uh, rockets or missiles used against the plant. So that will obviously accuse the Ukrainian that the West doesn't want to put it in an obvious uh, situation at the United Nations Security Council that Russia asked for a meeting. So main topic is not the grain because that is looking after itself and is working perfectly well with 23 to 30 shipments already coming out. Secondly, it is not Zaporozhia because the type of missiles and the caliber of rocket and missiles is still small enough not to cause a real danger to the centrifuge or to the uh, nuclear plant. And third, above all, this is the core topic, is the ceasefire or to see how the two parts can come to a term under the supervision of the United Nations, which is a very good sign. Now, Elijah, um, I'm not sure if you've already heard this story, but the Russian MOD, the Ministry of Defense, has, I, don't, I, I guess you can say, uh, preventatively or proactively has gotten ahead of the story. And they put out a statement saying that on August 19, the Kiev regime is preparing a false flag attack at the Zaporizhia NPP during a visit to Ukraine by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. As a result of this, 
provocation, Russia will be accused of creating a man-made disaster at this power plant. That came from the spokesman Igor Konashenkov. Do you, one, believe that, that the Russian MOD is revealing intelligence that they've discovered? Or do you think this is just something they're putting out there proactively to prevent any such thing from maybe happening? Or can it be both? Well, the Russians have long experience with the West dealing with propaganda and mounting false flags or even uh, pushing for chemical attacks for, uh, to, to call for further world intervention or indignation. However, we've seen, well, I'm sorry, we've seen that in Syria so many times. We've seen how the uh, um, Americans and uh, the British uh, skillfully managed to accuse President Assad from using chemical bombs when uh, UN inspectors found the bomb uh, coming through the roof, which is not coming through, because they found the bomb really lying on the bed without any damage. So many inspectors said that is laughable and a bomb cannot just come and lie on the bed with all its waste without damaging the bed itself. So... All that is a, is a, these are scenes that the Russians are used to, and um, the possibility of mounting an attack on Zaporozhye, it is something that the Russian uh, did as a preventive action to avoid it. However, we need to take into consideration that Europe will not allow this to happen for a simple reason. Any attack on Zaporozhye, the biggest nuclear reactor, reaction, uh, reactor in Europe, and the sixth biggest in the world will cause a disaster that Chernobyl will be nothing in comparison to Zaporozhye. Therefore, the Europeans will not accept to have this kind of uh, Western behavior, so they can tolerate a few rockets that are not capable of breaking through the roof or making holes in the wall and going through the reactors. However, they can't tolerate more than that, and this is a very dangerous game the Ukrainians are doing, or those behind the Ukrainians, because you read skillful people to direct the Ukrainians uh, who have no experience in propaganda warfare, and that is a, it requires a lot of knowledge to know how the world population and the world leaders will react and to which news, which information. But this is an indication for us uh, that the Ukrainians are coming to be uh, to the level of um, becoming desperate in this war when they use the last uh, trick that is bombing Zaporozhye to force the ceasefire or the end of this war. We have to keep in mind that there was a very interesting document that was leaked very recently by the Ukrainian themselves saying that they have more or less 200,000 men between wounded and killed, around 50-something killed and 140, 155,000 wounded uh, uh, in this war after a few months only. That means Ukraine, that count on 230 professional soldiers, have almost the entire army wiped out when we have the news, and this is an information comes from the Ukrainians, not from me or from the Russian or any other, uh, as it is called by mainstream media, Putinist. It comes from the Ukrainian documents, they are documents that were published 
on social media and giving an indication to the West uh, how far the Ukrainian can continue. However, there are the volunteer, there are the retired, and there's still a small number of, well, relatively small number of people fighting, but they are fighting to uh, the last resources, really. And this is another point why we see Guterres and Erdogan today in Lviv in Ukraine. Let me ask you this, Elijah. I'm looking at this article from the Washington Post, and there was a question to Zelensky about whether or not, or why didn't he warn the Ukrainian people? And the answer basically boiled down to, look, they would be taking money out of the country, they would be leaving the country, and basically we need to be able to fight a war. Basically, I don't want to create a certain amount of panic because we need this to be um, intact in order for us to even fight this conflict in the first place. What is your take on that? I mean, that's I guess on some level it's cynical, but it's right. I mean, all things being equal, people would leave. People would pull their money out of the economy and whatnot. Give me your take on this. Well, there are many articles and information coming out since several years about how corrupted is Ukraine, and in particular, President Zelensky. Um, Therefore, when you have so many billions coming in the country, Uh, without any accountability, even on the weapons that the West is asking where they are going to. When we see the Russian uh, military show uh, and we see uh, Western weapons uh, uh, presented at that Russian show, intact, they come from somewhere. It is not the spoil of war, but we have information coming from Ukraine, from Western journalists working for mainstream media saying that the Ukrainians are selling their weapons. So the level of um, Ukrainian corruption is so high to the point that we've heard about defraud bankers of 5.5 billion that went just simply missing. How can you have 5.5 billion missing. So in Ukraine, everything is possible. And when you have a, a, a whole number of countries behind Ukraine and Ukraine blackmailing all the Western countries saying, either you continue supplying me with money and weapons or I go and make a deal with Russia. Well, it seems that now we're coming to the end of the supply and the supply can not go in definitive from Russia, from the uh, Americans and from the European. And therefore, it will reduce the level of corruption that comes from the flow of weapons and flow of money that come to Ukraine. We have to remember that when Ursula von der Leyen went to Ukraine, Zelensky asked her for 9 billion euros per month to pay the salaries. To whom? There is no accountability. So everything is permitted. Interesting. I mean, but do you think it was right for him not to warn the public about this kind of oncoming um, oncoming war? I mean, because his point is basically like, look, we need people and we need money. We need both of those things to defend the country itself. And the fact that we need both of those things to defend the money means the indications that we could have given the public itself weren't. Meaning we couldn't do it. For practical reasons, we couldn't necessarily give the public this kind of heads up that invasion was coming into the country. Well, I will go back to something else to respond to this question. Not informing the public about this forthcoming war. The the former head of the CIA said the uh, Russians were piling up uh, men 
to 30,000 men in April 2021. And then every month the number would increase. We all knew that the Russians were uh, preparing for war and will not tolerate the presence of NATO in Ukraine and will ask from Ukraine to be neutral. Everybody was informed about the war. But what is interesting here is for the Washington Post to offer a sink for the Americans to wash their hand from what's happening in Ukraine, say, oh, this is not our fault. It's not the Americans' fault. It's only Zelensky who is not informing his own people about what the Russian uh, perspective are. But the Russia has been saying that since 1991. In 2008, in the Munich uh, Security Agreement, Putin said it. And throughout the years, Putin repeated it and said, we will not tolerate that. So the Ukrainians were informed. The Americans were informed. The West was informed. Everybody was informed about what can happen in Ukraine if, it, if NATO continue behaving as it is behaving today. So not informing the population is because there is no accountability, because the West, the Americans have appointed the Ukrainian leaders. And when the West appoint the Ukrainian leaders, everything is permitted for the Ukrainian leaders to do, because then they will not be accountable to the West, to the world, and to their own people. Now, tell me who is in his mind, in his full mind, will say to Russia, I challenge you to the last soldier I have when the outcome is known. Nobody. Oh, that's a good point. Elijah, I want to pivot to China for a bit. Um, there was another delegation that basically followed Mama Bear's delegation um, to Taiwan. And, of course, this wasn't going to go over all that well either, especially after the first delegation. There's also an article that basically came out in The Guardian. Taiwan is now a touchstone issue for the U.K. and the U.S. And for us in China, this is how we see it. And, look, under no uncertain terms, China has already made this point that we are willing to militarily defend Taiwan. Give me your take on this. I mean, it seems that we're creating two major conflicts, one in Ukraine itself, which is basically being pursuing its course now, and the other one with China, which whatever Biden is doing with us, whether it's with a wink and a nod, whether Pelosi is going with this kind of approval of the Biden administration, it seems that the one China principle at this point has been, is gone. Um, what is your take on this, especially for the consequences of what this is going to mean for the rest of the world going forward? Well, first of all, the Americans need to divert the attention of the domestic affairs and the failure they've had one through in Afghanistan and then in Ukraine now. And by doing that, they need to create many enemies. Secondly, what is difficult for me to understand is how people react to what's happening in Taiwan and China. When the whole world is acknowledging that Taiwan is part of China, when 181 nations at the United Nations agree that Taiwan is part of China, when the U.S. do not recognize Taiwan as independent, and when China come close to the uh, Strait of Taiwan in the maritime area of Taiwan, then we have the U.S. screaming and saying, you can't do that. But if Taiwan is part of China, China can do whatever it wants in Taiwan. It is its own territory. How can you say we believe in one China and Taiwan is part of China 
And then we ask China not to do anything in Taiwan or not to conduct maritime military maneuvers around Taiwan. Secondly, what is really laughable, and I bet you're going to laugh here, is after the visit of Pelosi, the newspaper came out of a very near visit of UK, Germany, and Lithuania diplomat going to visit um, Taiwan. I mean, Lithuania, we're seeing Lithuania as uh, putting an obstacle of the flow of uh, goods between Russia and Kaliningrad. We see the name of Lithuania involved in the special forces on the ground in Ukraine. And now we see Lithuania in the back of beyond going to send a visit, a, a delegation to Taiwan to challenge China. I mean, it is really unbelievable what the West is doing here. And yes, we have NATO interfering. That is a North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Suddenly, the North Atlantic is becoming in the middle of Central Asia. And then we have everybody having something to say about what's happening in Taiwan and China when it is a Chinese domestic affair. And we cannot tolerate Anything that is happening in Europe on our borders, neither the Americans will accept the presence of Chinese or Russian on their borders, but we can go and establish military bases and prevent China from using its um, the, the sea around Taiwan and carry out military maneuver. Now, to be logic, Taiwan is not independent. Taiwan is part of China. However, the Chinese keep a special status for Taiwan. And for that, the, the West had gone to Taiwan to provoke China because it's very aware of the sensitivity between Taiwan and China. By going there, it's a clear message that nobody missed around the world that this is a provocation to China and say, well, as we have Ukraine for Russia, we have Taiwan for China. That's an obvious message. However, China is not going to tolerate that because China is one of the biggest superpower countries in the world. Economically, it is um, between uh, just after the United States. Militarily, is not to be underestimated. It has nuclear power and it has control over its territory and it has presence a bit everywhere in the world, but not as a military presence apart from Djibouti. Therefore, by going to China, by going to China, Thailand, uh, Taiwan, sorry, by provoking China in Taiwan, it's a clear message to the uh, Chinese by saying, if you continue supporting Russia, we're going to create havoc in your backyard. Well, China is not going to accept that. And if the Americans continue pushing, the Americans can't do anything with uh, anything that China can do to Taiwan, notwithstanding the 1955 military cooperation and agreement between the United States and Taiwan. I mean, Elijah, to put it into perspective for some American listeners, it would be, for example, like if China came to Puerto Rico and said, Puerto Rico, we're going to we're going to have, uh, you know, foreign relations talks. We're going to set up ports here. The U.S. would not like that, right? If China came to Puerto Rico. And on that note, not only is this del the second delegation, U.S. Uh, congressional delegation going to China, or excuse me, going to uh, to Taiwan, but now they are setting up 
economics, foreign relations, trade talks with Taipei separate from Beijing. The Chinese foreign ministry has come out strongly against this. I mean, they mince no words. They flat out say China firmly opposes this. That's coming from the Ministry of Commerce spokesperson Xu Juting. She called on Washington to, quote, fully respect China's core interests. So not only that, but now Taipei is also having some maritime drills and what have you. Again, if we put the shoe on the other foot, this would be like if China came to Puerto Rico and said, we're going to have foreign relations talks. We're going to have bilateral trade talks, but never, ever tell Washington or invite them to come or take part. And now we're going to do military drills in Puerto Rico with the Puerto Ricans. How is this, you know, not hypocrisy at its highest? Well, if we remember the 1962 crisis uh, between Cuba and the uh, Americans over the Russian missiles, uh, Russia went to Cuba without occupying Cuba, and the Americans uh, was were about to uh, declare a third world war because of the Cuban missile in um, because of the uh, Soviet missile in Cuba. So, if we look at what the Americans are weapons that are supplied to. Uh, um, to Taiwan, if we look at the support that the Americans are giving to Taiwan, and we see how the Americans have a double standard by saying Taiwan is part of China, yes, it is like, it is even more than Puerto Rico. It is more than for the Chinese to go to Mexico and have a military base there. Well, the Chinese went to the Solomon Island that is 9,800 kilometers from the U.S., and the Americans said, this is a red line, we will not accept it. So it's, again, why we say double standard, because for the American uh, audience, is the Americans think they can do what they want, but nobody else can do or can imitate them or come close to what they are doing. However, if we look at the so many military bases around China, it, the Americans are the Americans asking, why do we have 750 military bases around the world? What are we doing around China? What are we doing around Iran? What are we doing in Syria and stealing the oil? Why we are in Europe to defend Europe from whom? We don't want to be defended from the Americans. We don't have enemies. So all these questions remain. It's not only China. China today is a message the Americans are sending to say you cannot continue supporting the Russian, or at least you cannot join Russia in its objective to remove the U.S. hegemony. Well, I'll tell you what, the war in Ukraine is not against Russia. It's against China from the first beginning. Donald Trump said it during the COVID and after. The main target is China, is not Russia. The main target is the fear that China caused to the U.S. hegemony, to U.S. financial and trade hegemony around the world. Well, there is a place for everybody in Africa and Asia and the Middle East, in Latin America, and we don't need a boss that going around the world creating war.
was left, right, and center, and saying, I want to destroy everything, and then if it is in my objective to pull out, I do that. This is what the Americans did in Afghanistan and destroyed the country. And then after that, they just uh, freeze $9 billion for Afghanistan. And then they made a peace deal with the Taliban. So all these behavior, going to war in Iraq, pushing Russia into war in Ukraine, challenging China in Taiwan, all these belligerent behaviors have one objective. If the Americans are afraid to step down on their thrones, and they don't want to be removed from the unilateral dominance of the world, where the world is changing. We can no longer go to Africa and enslave the African. We can no longer go and steal the African wealth. Today, Africa is challenging Europe and saying the Chinese come and build a hospital here and you come and dictate on us your policy. This is not acceptable. We can't do that with, the Taiwan, with Taiwan. We can't do that with China. We can't do that with Russia. We can't do that with, every, with anybody. Today, people have their own idea, their own knowledge. They're looking around. They understand. And I hope the American audience understand further their responsibility when they vote to a president who's taking them all the time to one war after another. Um, Elijah, I have, I guess there are two questions. One has to do with the wrong, um, Russian buying Iranian drones. But that was, this was something that I heard attributed to you, actually, where you were, um, I think it was Alexander McCurris was going into this and having this conversation about it. And there's, but the other one that's a little bit more prevalent to me has to do with, so Putin and Shoigu had a speech yesterday, both of them. And both the speeches were pretty, pretty much long um, and went into a lot of details. But one of the things that Putin mentioned was this idea and the way that Biden frames this autocracy versus democracy. Well, Putin kind of defined it in this idea of totalitarian lib- neoliberalism totalitarian neoliberalism and made a point that says, look, this conflict is against this kind of globalists who are trying to instantiate a certain totalitarian liberal liberalism on top of that or neoliberalism, but also that the conflict is really against individual nations with a certain sovereignty um, anchored by national or not, uh, international law. And I, th- I thought that was a fascinating way to look at it. I mean, all things being equal. There is some resemblance to that. You get this kind of other nations that are basically pulling back, whether you want to talk about the global south and many other other nations. And you get the West, who seems to be somewhat isolated. And this kind of fool's errand, whether it's on the issue of Ukraine or for that matter, even if it's on the issue of China. Give me your take on that. I mean, I don't know if you saw the speeches themselves, but I, I definitely would like your take on this idea of this kind of changeover of the world, where it's no longer this unipolar world, but it's a collection of nations. And what is that going to mean going forward in the future? If you have basically Russia, um, Moscow, talking about globalism um, in, this, in these terms. The idea of globalism comes from a challenge to the unilateralism. And because since 1991, the perestroika, the Americans did not find any challenger around the globe. And they were left on their own on the international arena. And logically, the Soviet Union was... Uh, uh, under very heavy uh, financial burden and was demounting itself by releasing all these uh, small nations to become independent, including uh, Eastern Europe. So after that, it took a long time for the Russians to stand on their feet, for the Chinese to build their economy and to become so powerful as they are today. 
However, we've seen Russia always accommodating the Americans in every single theater. In uh, in the G7, it became the G8. We've seen that the um, the Russian accepted the uh, invasion of uh, Libya, and Medvedev didn't say anything at that time. They went to Syria, and the Russian didn't say anything. The Americans were everywhere. They attacked Iraq in 2003, Afghanistan, and they offered uh, support to the Americans. At the end of the day, the Russian said, we're going to protect our base in Syria in 2015, but they were not at all in the mood to challenge the U.S. unilateralism. They were always on a low profile building their economy. However, when the Americans refused to collaborate with Russia, this is where Russia forced itself on defending its, um, um, its naval base. And that was not even a challenge to the Americans because the Americans even killed 200 Russian soldiers trying to cross the Euphrates River, and the Russians didn't react. They say, okay, we consider that collateral damage, case closed, and we continue because we have good relationship. And Russia was part of NATO, but not as a member, but as a very good friend of NATO presence with NATO. And when things went off the track, is when the Americans insisted since 2004 in changing the regime in Ukraine and George Bush failed. And then 2014, Obama succeeded. And then Donald Trump did not have a lot of appetite, but he left the thing for the Americans, uh, for the Pentagon to deal with it until Biden came and who has a very good uh, understanding of Ukraine because of the involvement of his son, Hunter, there. So this is when the things started to turn ugly because the Americans put in their head the challenge to China and to cut the wing, the military wing of China by attacking Russia. And as the U.S. Defense Secretary said, we want to cripple the Russian economy. We want to destroy Russia. So the aim was not to tell Russia you can't attack Ukraine, but to destroy Russia. Now, that is a, a, an attempt to destroy the Russian national security that Russia will not accept. By going to war in Ukraine, Russia went to war against NATO, against the United States, against all the weapons that NATO is offering to Ukraine, plus what the New York Times said, you, uh, American and Western European uh, special forces on the ground helping the Ukrainian. They've established a military operation in, in Germany, so they are killing Ukrainian and Russian soldiers. At that point, the Russian said, enough is enough, and now you no longer dictate on us your terms, and you no longer dominate the world, and we are going to offer to the world another model. Well, the Chinese were offering another model, challenging the U.S. hegemony by saying, I don't need to occupy other countries to tell them that they can reconstruct their infrastructure and become more wealthy. The Americans go in like, a fire, like an elephant in a Chinatown. They destroy everything and they move out. The Chinese are saying, we helped you to rebuild and we make business with you and we both make money. The Russian today are joining the effort with the Chinese to say to the Americans, the world is not yours, 
Two-thirds of the world stood against your sanction and against your behavior in Ukraine and against your behavior with Russia and China, and now it is time for you to step down. That is the objective. Elijah, always appreciate these conversations. Absolutely. Elijah Magnier, he's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at E-J-M-A-L-R-A-I and find his reporting on the website, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. And we're going to go to callers immediately. Elijah, thank you one more time. Um, Let's go to... First to Jim in Maryland. Yes. Hello, Jim. Hi. Hi, guys. Uh, this, is, this is a side thing, but I've been trying to figure out what's happened to Crosstalk with Peter Laval on RT, and maybe you guys have contacts or something. Uh, it hasn't been updated for two weeks now, okay? And usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and all they're doing is playing old episodes. Got any ideas? Oh, wow. First of all, if you're here in Maryland. I'm shocked that you're able to see Peter Lavelle. Yeah. Uh, seeing as you know, RT is banned across um, no, all no, Western have, countries. RT app works perfectly fine. Okay. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. With and the RT app, you hit shows, and they didn't take down all the old ones. I mean, there's... he just hasn't posted new ones, is what it sounds like. I mean, he could be on vacation. Have you checked out his um, social media to see if he's made any indication? I can't find him on social media. I've done all sorts of research. You guys must know someone at RT, right? Even Peter. Yeah, I just haven't if looked into it. <laughs> vacation, it would be nice if he told people. Yeah. I found on Twitter was someone else having the same question, but no answer. All right, so I found him on Twitter. Um, let's see, everything I sent him from Twitter are my opinions and my own opinions. And the last message from him was February 28th. Yeah. So he hasn't, Peters hasn't been on him. I don't know. I haven't looked into it. I didn't know that he hadn't posted any shows, but yeah, if we find something out. They've been, they've been consistent, regular, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's part of my information basis, okay? And hmm. We should, we'll ask, actually, we can ask Mark Sloboda. He would know. Yeah, yeah, because I, I like Lavelle. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't know him directly. At least I don't know him directly. He's been on a show a few times. But look, to your point, uh, February 28th, I think was last. Yeah, that's curious. Is Sputnik connected to RT in any way? Um, they're like cousins. Ish. They're cut co- like cousin company. Yeah, not we're not we're not directly related RT and Sputnik, but yeah, like cousins, second cousins. Yeah, <laughs> like a second cousin. <laughs> um, Jim, thank you, man. We'll we'll see what we can find out. We'll see what Mark says about it. Um, give you a heads up, Tarif. We have about one minute. Go for it. Unless you want to call back at nine forty-five. Okay. Oh, we lost Tarif. Okay, he's gonna. He'll probably call back. Yeah. So, All right, Tarif. We'll we'll get to you. Well, like next this, round. I, late to saying crosstalk is still active. So I don't know what's going on with. I don't know. I didn't know that he was because he he's was in missing. Moscow, right? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that he was missing. Yeah. But I, I mean, I'm sure he's fine. I would hope. He might, like you said, he might just be on vacation or something. Yeah, he might just be on vacation. Just in telling, maybe there was a family emergency. So late is saying an RT employee told him that he is in the office. So he's still alive, mm. still awake, still okay. breathing. No issue. All He's right. still there. So no worries there, Jim. Yeah. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Shan, back for the last hour. We're going to have Tyler Nixon at 9.15. Oh, that'll be fun. Yes, that should be a lot of fun, especially with the Roger Stone stuff that basically oh. came out of the Trump investigation. So you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. 
lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Always enjoy those conversations with Elijah. I could talk to that guy for hours. Elijah just does not hold back. No. He (laughs) tells exactly what he thinks. I mean, those weren't the exact words that went through my mind, but I can't say that he gives no... F's. Yeah, yeah. He just says it. I mean, look, at the point where you're a war correspondent for 35 years and you've been to all of those war zones, I'd imagine, yeah, you just tell exactly what I think. This is exactly what I think. Here's my analysis. Yeah. And by the way, you can see it, what it looks like on the ground. Meaning, one of the things that Chris Hedges talked about was this um, distinction between, let's say, what people say, let's say, when they're writing stories versus people who are on the ground and can see that stuff unfold. And the differences between those things. Anybody can sit in a you know room and postulate X or Y. It's another thing to see real-world policy taken into effect and what it means in practice. Well, Hedges, Hedges is definitely a little more diplomatic, we'll yes. say, when he oh, yeah. speaks about stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, Elijah's just like, yeah, this is stupid, and no. they did this. and It's like, yeah, hey, no right doing this, and this was criminal. Except, yeah. Oh, I love him. Love that so guy. I'm like, all right then. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that is very dumb. Yes, yep. I agree. <laughs> yes, I, I, I can get with that. I mean, not that I, I don't appreciate Chris Hedges' um, more, you know, very analytical, yes. diplomatic speak around he it. Sounds like a pastor, or like a preacher. Right. Not a preacher, but like, like a minister. I mean, he used to use religious studies. That was his thing. Right, so he speaks a little more reserved yes. in that sense. Like, he's not using bombastic words no. as much. I like the way Elijah talks. But Elijah's just like... Yeah, here's this, here's that, and this, I saw that, and then this analysis, blah, blah, blah. This guy's an idiot. Yeah. I'm like, wow. I appreciate that. And he's all so right. easy to talk to, affable, all that stuff. And he knows his stuff. So, love yeah. Elijah as a guest. Yeah, so always always appreciate him. And I think the, the listeners like him as well. Yeah. But I think they, I think, I think the days of the Walter Cronkite, this is the nightly news. <laughs> right, right. I think we've way gone past that. Yeah. And, you know, culture is just, we've gotten so casual and informal. So I think that traditional newsman that you think of, or even the the news lady, even the Barbara Walters, Connie Chung, you know, very buttoned down and very, I think that day is gone. Yeah. I think people want to hear straight up talk, straight analysis. I think people are more interested in just being able to connect with what that reporter or the anchor is saying. social media. Yeah. And, yeah, and social, and that's what makes social media so popular, is that they're able to see for themselves, and regular people are telling you, like the Arab Spring. That's right. what really propelled the whole thing. Is like you have regular people that are that are effectively acting as a reporter, right? As to what they're seeing. They're this is what's posting. going on on the ground, right? Right here. Oh, I just saw this person, you know, get, you know, run over by a military vehicle, or what, you know, yeah. that that's real. Yeah. That's real talk. And I think so since then, that's been over a decade now. So I think over the past decade, that has really, really moved the needle on where um, news, quote, news, yeah. what it's supposed to look like. Right. The supposed to Walter Cronkite days. Yeah. Over. Yeah. Gone. I mean, at this point, it seems that most of that stuff is transferred through social media anyway. Right. Like, regardless of whatever the original story is, that stuff gets filtered through social media where you're going to get people talking about it, independent um, authors or journalists talking about it. All that stuff. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I, I think people are way... I mean, not to say that there aren't some people that are still very into the old, button down more reserved kind right. of a way, 
but I think for the most part, people are, they want to hear it raw. Yes. They just, they don't want the filter. They just want to hear Especially it. Especially as they get old, like younger generation. I mean, they become oh, yeah. used to this. I mean, this is just kind of That's the way the world norm. is. Yeah. They look at black and white TV, Walter Cronkite. They're like, oh God, like, yeah. that's horrible. Like that, how is this even news? Yeah. Like, no one would even like, they would flip the channel in a heartbeat yeah. if Walter Cronkite were alive today. It's like, where's the thumps and the, you know, the football? Because me- media today sounds like football. Like if you watch the CNN and yeah. they would talk about the elections, they'd be like, dun, dun, dun. I suppose, you know. It's like, oh, all right, do you dude. know that they've hired, like for all the big networks, yeah. they hire people to work on the on the backs behind the camera yeah. to put in those elements. To make it more entertaining. They hire people yeah. that, that have sports backgrounds. It's like we got to make it dramatic. It's make it more dramatic. Yeah. They want people that have, they hire like marketing people from yeah. sports and all that stuff because they've, they've, you know, just look at how they cover elections and how it's like fight night. Ding, yeah. ding, ding. Right? Yeah. Like, they, it's a commodification of the electoral totally, process. Totally, yeah. totally. So CNN is 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 famous for that, and they've um, there's. It's like look at the board, and they are fighting here, and it's board and, and this state. Wrote all the story stuff. or something about that, about how or no, it was in his book that I recently read that the name escapes me. But yeah. Matt Taibbi's um, assessment was absolutely right that they hired CNN in particular, yeah, hired people coming out of ESPN and whatever to. Mm-hmm. To make it look sport-like. Yes. And that's where we've evolved to as to a news consumer. Because they're trying to create a competition. I mean, they're trying to, yeah. meaning, it's like, okay, this is politics. This can be dry. How do we make this sexier? Right. And, oh, I know how. Let's bring in, make it more like sports. It's a fight between yes. these personalities. Yes. Good it, and bad. Yeah. You know. Here like are the David space. and Goliath. Or yeah. It's always, it's got to be something like a, a biblical fight or like some sort of sports fight, yeah. like this team versus that team. So in a way, I can appreciate that it's more fun and it's gotten more people involved and interested in politics. But at the same time, that that kind of... Um, Undercuts the substance of I, the politics. I, exactly. Yeah. It deludes, deludes the actual, the substance. Yeah. And the, the gravity, because it boils it down to its most basic parts. Yeah. And where the it's politics, the minutia is what matters. Yes. The most basic parts, like you can hate Trump all you want, right. but there, when you look at the the minutia of Trump and the things that he did in office, there are some good things that he did. Yeah, like so you can hate him as a person. Is he a d bag? Probably. Yeah. But again, we have sportified. Politics. Personality issues right, as opposed by way to of policy, TV. substance, and that type of stuff. So, and, and that was agree with you. Elijah, that. though, just saying it. Balls and strikes. Yeah. This is what it is. No play. Love it. Love it. All right. With that, let's head over to some headlines. The morning news quickies here. The Afghan police have confirmed that at least 21 people have been killed and 33 others have been injured in an explosion at a mosque just north of Kabul the day before. In the UK, over 65% of the Conservative Party members, they say they intend to vote for Foreign Secretary Liz Truss to advance to becoming the next UK Prime Minister and Tory leader. That's according to a new poll by YouGov and Sky News. Then some domestic news here. The majority of Americans are really not very happy with Joe Biden. I think you already know that. Uh, YouGov here again. Along with The Economist, they released a poll Wednesday night. Even among Democrats, one in five people do not support Biden's handling of the whole world. They say only 16% of 1,500 adult U.S. citizens surveyed 
say that they strongly approve of the way Biden is handling his foreign policy. 16%, that's terrible. Only 25% say they somewhat approve. That's a grand total of 41% of saying, yeah, Joe, you're all right. Meanwhile, 37% strongly disapprove. 14% say somewhat disapprove with a grand total there of 51%. So I guess there's some numbers missing there. (laughs) So when the question was narrowed down to 1,312 registered voters, disapproval overall, general disapproval, rose to 53%, and his support was about 42%, so I guess the other people were, eh, somewhere in the middle. Then two former U.S. judges have been ordered to pay $206 million in civil court damages for taking kickbacks from a builder of these for-profit prisons to send, not adults, here's the worst part, as if that wasn't bad enough, to send kids to jail. The two Pennsylvania ex-judges, Mark Ciavarella and Michael Conahan, have to pay more than $106 million in compensatory damages, $100 million in punitive damages to around 300 of their victims, according to a ruling from a U.S. district court in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The two men were previously convicted on criminal charges in connection with that scheme, though Conahan was released to home confinement last year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Under the so-called Kids for Cash scandal, Sia Varela and Conahan shut down a county-operated juvenile detention center and took $2.8 million in bribes from the developer of these two for-profit jails, one called PA Child Care, I don't know what kind of care that is, but PA child care and Western PA child care. So according to testimony in the civil lawsuit, the judges sent children as young as eight years old. Folks, that's like second grade, eight years old to jail. And many of these cases were petty offenses, something as stupid as jaywalking and smoking on school property, underage smoking on school property, sent some of these kids to these for-profit prisons. Terrible story. Then international news, the Russian Ministry of Defense has stated that Kiev is preparing a provocation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant during the UN Secretary General's visit to Ukraine scheduled for Friday. The MOD said on August 19, the Kiev regime is preparing a false flag attack at the Zaporizhia NPP during a visit to Ukraine by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. As a result of this provocation, Russia will be accused of creating a man-made disaster at this power plant. That coming from MOD spokesman Igor Konashenkov talking to reporters today. He added that on August 19, units of the 44th Artillery Brigade of the Armed Forces of Ukraine plan to launch artillery strikes on the territory of Zaporizhia and PP from firing positions located in the city of Nikopol. Then the Chinese Ministry of Trade said on Thursday that Beijing is, quote, resolutely opposed to trade talks between Washington and Taipei, which are due to be held under the auspices of the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade. 
The ministry's spokeswoman, Xu Juting, told reporters that the One China principle is the prerequisite for Taiwan to participate in overseas economic cooperation. Xu added that Beijing calls on Washington to, quote, properly handle trade relations with Taipei and respect China's core interests. The spokeswoman pledged China would do its best to, quote, safeguard national sovereignty, security, and development interests. Then on August 18th, workers of Network Rail, that's from several train companies, the London Underground and buses in the capital of, uh, obviously of the UK, will begin the latest round of strikes due to disputes over their jobs, the pay, the working conditions and what have you, all the conditions around um, their employers. Members of the Rail, Maritime and Transport, or the RMT Union, will strike on both Thursday and Saturday, Meanwhile, London tube workers will strike on Friday and London United bus drivers plan to strike Friday to Saturday. So during the strike, travel will obviously be very hampered. Rail and bus services will be substantially reduced. Then some Earth science news for you. The prevailing theory among scientists is that around four and a half billion years ago, when the Earth was still forming, and was covered in molten lava. It was apparently struck by an object thought to be roughly the size of Mars, known as Theia. Now, it's believed that Theia was destroyed in the process. Earth lost a significant portion of mass. Then the gravitational pull of the remains of Earth then held debris from this event in the orbit, which quickly, and by quickly, we mean 100 years over the span of existence. (laughs) 100 years is a small portion. That is apparently what formed the moon. So this stuff with Theia formed the moon. Now, thanks to this research coming from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, we have more evidence to back it up. Patricia Will led a group of researchers there in studying six lunar meteorites discovered in Antarctica in the early 2000s. All right, funny news of the day. Over in Japan, they're tax service department has launched a new contest calling on Japanese citizens to come up with innovative ways to revive falling alcohol sales, hoping to encourage young adults to hit the bar more often and give a shot up for government revenues. The National Tax Agency, the NTA, has dubbed the new campaign Sake Viva after Japan's Iconic rice wine, obviously. They're combining some international flair there. Sake, viva. They're calling on folks only between ages 20 and 39 to submit business ideas for the country's alcohol industry, which is lagging in the wake of COVID-19 with declining drinking habits nationwide, which is in sharp contrast to what we saw here in the United States during the COVID lockdowns. Alcohol sales went through the roof. People were, I mean, the shelves were bare here in the U.S., um, so very different there in Japan. So as noted, uh, an, a, a government official website that caught international attention this week following local media reports that the contest will run September 9 and asked for new products and designs as well as ways to promote drinking at home. <laughs> they want you to drink at home, Japan. Trying to get alcoholics. That's what we want. What? What? What is this? Alcoholics help 
boost revenue. Like, I get Tax you revenue. want to boost revenue, but can't you think of a different way than to, like, poison your people by telling them to get drunk at home? Like, this is just weird. Now, winners will be invited to an award ceremony in Tokyo in November, and the tax body has, the tax agency has vowed to back investments into the winning idea. So, drink up, Japan. Kanpai. This day in history, 1914, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson issues the Proclamation of Neutrality. This day in 1920, a young 22-year-old representative, Harry T. Byrne, was the deciding vote in Tennessee's and thus America's ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution allowing women's suffrage because his mother sent him a letter and that made him pivot on his opinion to vote for women's suffrage and give mama and the other ladies some love and some rights. In 1963, James Meredith becomes the first black student to graduate from the University of Mississippi. In 1969, the Woodstock Music and Arts Fair in Bethel, New York, came to a close after three nights with a mid-morning set played by the one and only Jimi Hendrix. That will do it for your headlines this Thursday, August the 18th. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. All right. We're going to go to our guest, Tyler Nixon. We're going to have a conversation about domestic politics, the Trump raid, and of course, the one and only Roger Stone, considering Tyler Nixon is Roger Stone's lawyer, and Roger Stone popped up in the documentation that was pulled from Trump's residence. So you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And as you all know, we are living in the wake of the Donald Trump raid, and we are basically waiting to figure out what does the raid mean and practice. One of the things that's taking place today, though, is the magistrate is hearing the case by various news organizations to get the affidavit released, meaning they want release to see basically what the FBI, the reason, the justification, the rationale behind the FBI going for the search of Trump, the search that Merrick Garland basically said that he himself directly approved. So. That court case is going on right now. It is unclear what the judge is going to decide on that. But once the judgment comes out, we will give you a heads up. We don't even know if it's going to come out today. But to have a conversation about the events that have been taking place, along with issues of Trump, um, we are joined with Ted Tyler Nixon. Tyler Nixon is an Army entry veteran, a counselor at law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, Roger Stone's attorney, and also extremist in the defense of liberty. Um, Tyler. What's going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Coming to you from Brandon Falls, Delaware. Um, Brandon <laughs> you know, Falls. Uh, <laughs> I like yes, that. Yes, yes. Is that really <laughs> a real place? Historic site. <laughs> with, Kennedy, with Kennedy, was back into the left, back into the left. Biden, 
down and to the right, down and to the right. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> anyway, you know, the X marks the spot. It's like Dealey Plaza out there, honestly, right above uh, of North Shores here in um, uh, Rehoboth Beach. But uh, beautiful day, beautiful uh Beautiful day to be alive. I'm thinking of moving to Japan, actually, <laughs> after your uh, Get your good drink going. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but you can't submit yes, for the yes. contest because you're over the age of 39. They want millennials. How do you know that? You told us. <laughs> you went to school with Hunter Biden. Oh, damn. Damn it. But you, that doesn't stop you from no, day drinking, no, no. though. If you're in Japan, you can day drink yeah, all no, you we're want. We're going to encourage you to day drink. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So there's that part. Well, uh, well, just be part of the lifestyle, you know, here in Margaritaville. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, it's good good to be with, back with you guys. Uh, Absolutely. How's oh, your summer going? So far, so good. Um, I would say better that you're with us because I definitely want to get your take on what has been taking place with the Trump raid. We're, we're going to get some laughs out of this, I'm oh, yes. sure. I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> tell us, first of all, like, why affidavits? Why is the DOJ pushing so hard to not get this released because— even I believe Trump's people are like, yeah, release the affidavit, release yeah. it. And then a bunch of news agencies, outlets are saying, release, release it. it. They're they're trying to foil, oh, not foil, file a FOIA request for this to be released. DOJ says, uh-uh, uh-uh, it's going to hamper our investigations and, you know, boilerplate stuff that they say. They're wrong about that. But couldn't they, couldn't they just redact some things that are sensitive and then release the rest? Well, you know, I mean, if they're, well, first of all, Look at who is running this investigation in the FBI. This is the same people who ran the so-called Russia probe. So, I mean, literally, you have Peter Strzok's flunkies. Uh, you have Brian Otten. You have basically the same cast of characters who who you know, put the country through four years or plus of total nonsense, total fabrication, just to just to get one man, just to get this, you know, get Donald Trump. And uh, you know, these people have no credibility left. And the fact that again, everybody involved. You know, from both every side, just about, except for, of course, the Justice Department, once once transparency, once the information released, says it all. I mean, it's they do. I mean, there's nothing there can't be anything in there. This isn't like, a, you know, they're calling it a counterintelligence investigation. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, this is just, you know, this is the latest, the latest hoax, the latest farce, the latest fishing expedition. Um, and the fact that they came out with things like Rogers, uh, you know, Clement Rogers pardon, a copy of his pardon, uh -huh. and, you know binders of pictures and that was done so ham-handedly and so sloppily um as i understand without even really notifying or having involvement of the local fbi office there the miami office you know dare they they because they might actually have you know straightforward agents in there who, who question this oh i didn't know, you know that they did the, they this, send the dc guys from the hoover building that's correct yeah wow. interesting did. i didn't know that either yeah, I no, this, this, was... is, this is all yeah this is all being run out of dc um, which which really says it all, in my opinion. I mean, you know, the, the, when, you, when you exclude your local branch office, yeah. um, you know, that's that's a that's a problem. I mean, this um, puts you in the mind of the Clinton and, investigation too, right? Where they kept that stuff at a high level. I mean, they weren't necessarily being engaged with the um, local level. Also, isn't there something yeah. to be said about this being a previous president? It looks like clarity and transparency will be through and through the entirety of the process. Because, of course, you're going to get hit with claims that you're, you know, this is a continuation a of the hunt against hit. Trump. Yeah, exactly. It looks like transparency yeah, would just be why, built into it. Uh, absolutely. You know, and, and look, it, it, it really reveals the sort of the one trick pony aspect, the desperation, I think, of the ruling junta right now in power that um, they just they don't know anything else to do but to use force and fraud at this point. And it, it's really sad because, again, you know, the, we rely on these national, uh, this national law enforcement agency. 
um, to, for so many other aspects of the enforcement of law. And you see so many crimes uh, being committed and, and just with uh, in, often with impunity, it would seem um, that are so much more profound and have so many more victims than frankly sending in. Thir- and, and I did note <laughs> Roger has always said, you know, 29 SWAT, SWAT clad, uh, you know, agents came in and, and I noticed that it was 30. Trump, you know, like they had to bump it up one. (laughs) He's a former president. Can't take no chance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, You know, but you gotta show um, respect, Tyler. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh, exactly, exactly. You know, it's you know, in in their minds, I guess. And next one will be thirty-one, I guess. Right. But no, it's just it's ludicrous. I mean, just you know, we're sitting here arguing over the affidavit for it. Why was there an armed raid conducted in the first place? I mean, this is just again, they have so few tricks left. But they, they, they are like they don't know anything else to use at this point. And the fact that there's no transparency, they should be bending over backwards, frankly, to release and to explain to the public exactly what's going on. But, you know, I think they just figure, you know what, we can just throw slop against the wall and hopefully something sticks to Trump or we create this cloud of suspicion and whatever around him. But I just I, they're so tin eared at this point. The public, I mean, my God, do you think do you know anybody who really believes that this is a legitimate investigation and does not have completely partisan under and overtones and is really just intended to to throw a distraction or some sort of wrench into the, the coming wave uh, that's going to sweep, frankly, a lot of Democrats out of Congress and um, probably set up whoever runs on the Republican side uh, for you know a major win in 2024. I mean, it's like the Democrats, I, I'm shocked, frankly, that they're this uh, sort of, um, I don't know if it's, I, I guess, I guess they're not very imaginative oh, people. Tyler, running, running I, I know, I know, right? I know tons of people with TDS, right? Like Trump derangement <laughs> syndrome is a real sure. thing. Yes, it is. And I, I know tons of people that that believe this is a legitimate thing and that this is like it's crazy, you know, that that Merrick Garland is is pure of heart and soul. And he's doing this, you know, for the good of democracy and the American people and yada, yada, yada. Um, but I that this just makes it worse. I, I had not read that this was um, coming out of of. FBI HQ, because to to the Florida field offices, um, to their defense and and bravo to them during COVID, I did watch the the McMillions scandal or whatever it was. I think it was on Netflix about the whole FBI, how they busted the McDonald's scheme, like the the monopoly scheme. So, mm-hmm. you know, those guys, may, maybe they would have done a fair and, and clear and concise job uh, at at raiding Mar-a-Lago, but that is so fascinating to hear that or, it's coming Or not from, at all. Or not at all. Right. Maybe they wouldn't have done it, right? Like if they, if, if the FBI field office was able to um, spearhead this operation, it probably wouldn't have gone this far, but it sounds like it's coming directly from Merrick Garland. He did own up to that. Merrick Garland did say he's the one that approved this. And now he's also the one blocking the affidavit, affidavit from coming out. So we have a blocked affidavit. Um, the DC spooks going over there to just grab everything in sight, including passports of the former president. Um, they rifled through Melania's closet. I'm not sure why. Oh, you know why? J- just to be me. Yeah. Underwear sniffing. Oh God. Yeah, that's what it was. That's you know what? Exactly. Probably, you know what? Probably. T- see the. I love the truth telling on this. That, radio that's what it song. is, man. <laughs> I, it's like. <laughs> oh. <no. sighs> 
You want, <laughs> you want, you want Travis Agent you know Bob? Her, I'll try it, Agent Bob. If her yeah. underwear goes missing, it's gonna. I, I'll tell you where it's gonna turn up. It's gonna. These people are sick. It's I'm possible. You, are, I'll tell you. There's a website. There's a website for it. I don't know if you guys know. It's called Sniffer. Oh but no. The oh fur, my god. Yeah, it, it's true. It's called Sniffer, and there's no e yeah. in there. It's Sniff R Sniffer. <laughs> right. And people Good go Lord. there to sell their their dirty their stank panties. And I, people pay I have a lot of money. This is going to make its way back to Biden. So, oh, wow. oh, Sniffer. There's that ticket to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So there's just Get me on board. This. this is just all all weird to me. Nothing is sticking so far. Um, I think so far in most Tuesday primaries, all of the people that Trump backed, not all, but like 85% of yes. the people that he's backed They're have gone. won their primaries. And... And this week we just saw, hello, Liz Cheney get the beatdown of a lifetime. Ding dong. Lifetime. Ding dong. Ding dong. So, I mean, wicked this can't when be she's dead. This, this is horrible. <laughs> like, what do the Democrats, if, if this is indeed a political hit, what do the Democrats think? Like, did they think this was actually going to help their cause, this Mar-a-Lago raid? Well, they have so little left, I think. They've run through. It's just, yeah, I, they don't know how to get this guy. Other than to use, you know, again, force and fraud. And it's really just, and it shows you that they're willing to toss away the reputation or what, what's left of the reputation. I mean, I'm, I'm, I really, at this point, I think the FBI is so corrupt um, and institutionally, it's beyond redemption. I mean, let's face it, that, you know, as I've said before, as long as J. Edgar Hoover's name is on that building, you know, a serial blackmailer uh, and, you know, what he did with COINTELPRO and those types, and frankly, the Warren Commission, uh, you know, is a stain on history that, that, Frankly, we're still seeing the vestiges of today. Uh, and there was a period probably from the 80s into the 90s where after Hoover was gone, there was you know good guys that came in. They took down essentially the mafia as a yeah. major, I mean, you know, to the extent it exists today, it's certainly nothing what it was. Then, then, then you had, of course, the Bushies come in. You had Robert Mueller appointed a week before 9-11, literally. And you had his, his put in, in a, a policy essentially which said up or out. If you're not rising in the organization, you're out. And all these all, all these old school guys who are you know legitimate crime fighters uh, like a, you know, Jim Calstrom um, and others who, who were just you know forced out. And and what they brought in was McCabe, Peter Strzok, these uh, ladder climbing, ruthless partisan, crypto partisan criminals. Frankly, McCabe and by it the really way is showing now. Have you guys seen McCabe? By the way, not recently. No. He is. I forget if it's MSNBC or CNN, but he is now a contributor, is and he? he has a big shocking. old paid contract here. So shocking, totally Andrew shocking. Andrew yeah. McCabe. Yeah, no, it's it's, and that's the revolving door. With the, I mean that, and this just discredits, frankly. MSNBC, to the extent you can even describe, I mean, that have no credit. They were already discredited. Yeah, surely hyper-partisan propaganda machine at this point, um, and it shows, of course, in the in the absolute tanking of CNN's and uh, MSNBC's ratings, whatever whatever they did have. Um, and uh, interestingly, even Greg Gutfeld's show on Fox is now number one at night, so he's beating out three the other, uh, you know, Colbert and and the rest of them. Which what does that tell you? I mean, I, you know. What does that reflect? And it's not so much that, I mean, I think Gutfeld's, if you've ever seen the show, it's funny. I mean, he's, they're irreverent yeah, he's and they, they tell it like it is really. It's, but, you know, it's a shame to see that even like late night TV, the late night so-called comedy shows or whatever you want to call them, have, have become just like these sort of 
uh, establishment propaganda outlets where it's like, yeah. this is not funny. People, right. you know, it's, this is not Johnny Carson joking about Ronald Reagan. No, it's not. This is like, this is like establishment propaganda direct being troweled out to you with these, you know, tittering uh, sheep in the audience that I'm surprised they can even get an audience in there. And you notice they don't show the audience anymore because right. people are probably like, no, no, please, you know. But um, yeah, no, look, I mean, I just, uh, I think these people have, you know, it shows the isolation uh, and the sort of uh, the rarefication of thought that goes in, into this bubble, this bubble of power and privilege um, that the swamp has become. The disconnect. That they're, they're so, insul- I mean, I mean, you, we, you know, you, we're all here old enough to remember, and you were talking about Walter Cronkite. Um, you know, that's the way it is. I mean, whatever it was, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, Cronkite and those guys were seen. I mean, they might've leaned sort of left a little bit, you know, just liberal, I guess you could say. But for the most part, it didn't matter what stripe, your political stripe you were. If you were a corrupt, you know, a power abuser, you were, you were done. They were going to take you out. And that was just not acceptable. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, eventually the scandal would come around and get you whatever it was. Now it's like they, this, the mainstream legacy propaganda, when I, prop- I call propaganda media, has become an insulator, has become yes. literally this filter. And it's a filter, not in the direction, I think, of the public where they're filtering out, you know, the, it's more like a filter in the direction of the people in power where they're not getting, they they're run, so insulated, they they're not defense. hearing the way things are. Yeah, they it's like, they're defense. just, it's, it's, I mean, it literally has become like a uh, very much probably like there was in the Soviet Union in some ways where you know, bad news never filtered in because, you know, God forbid, it was this sort of cultish kind of uh, environment where they don't want to hear anything and there's nothing reported unless they're actually going to alternative sources to get either an alternative viewpoint, an opposing viewpoint, or just any kind of other factual news yeah, agreed. That, I mean, that, that would counter their sort of, you know, Lottie Dahl, Marie Antoinette narrative that they have in their head. Well, it's beyond that. I mean, at this point, what, Ministry of Truth? I mean, the entire point of that Ministry yeah. of Truth was basically to almost. knock down anything they didn't we like. almost there. Yeah, almost to the point of having something like that. Not to mention in Europe, where they basically eliminated RT and Sputnik. I mean, they were chest stumping the elimination of other sources yeah. of information that they didn't necessarily want to deal with, regardless of that whether the it was state true didn't or not. want to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And the media basically falling in line with state um, narrative. I, I'm curious on Roger Stone for a moment. Um, at the one of the documents of the things that they pulled was the clemency for Roger Stone. You're his attorney. Did he say anything about this? Like, did you guys talk about this in any particular way that you can disclose? Like, because once again, Stone is in the media. <laughs> Top of the headline story. Right. Yeah. Um, Trump, yeah, he's, Stone, yeah. once again, connected. Got to give Roger credit for someone who's never held an elected office or even a position in government. The man knows how to get news. Yes, <laughs> yes. But I, even I, when he's I, not trying, you know, right? I, I would joke with Roger that uh, you know I, I think they're going to try to maybe erase the, the pardon, pretend it never happened somehow, and you know convince everybody he was never pardoned, and then like, call you up. No, I mean it's not even funny. I to joke about that honestly because these people, I mean, with the extent they're willing to go to get Trump and everybody related to him, I mean, yeah. But I mean. It's just an oddity. It shows you like, okay, Roger Stone's pardon. That's just an historic like afterthought document. I mean, it doesn't matter what the piece of paper that it's on. The presidential act is what matters. So, you know, there's no there's no concern there. But I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, the, just the complete, again, ham-handed sort of slapdash. And then, of course, overkill nature of this says everything the public needs to know to know that, they're, you know, unfortunately, now that you have the t- attorney general as much as they might have said, 
Barr is, uh, you know, Trump acting like Trump's, you know, uh, defender, his sort of whatever. Personal, whatever. Uh, we certainly noticed that wasn't the case with Sessions. I mean, but, you know, Barr, they, they went after him as though he was somehow. And of course, he was no Trump ally by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, he was uh, he, he was in the uh, CIA, uh, an attorney in the CIA under George H.W. Bush. So, I mean, he's, a, you know, has more Bushy credentials than some of the some of the uh, Bush family, frankly. Um, and look, I mean, this is where you have now what it really looks like when the attorney general is truly a, a flack, a, uh, you know, a partisan hack uh, on behalf of this president who I question whether, um, I mean, Joe Biden's looking rough these days, my friends. I mean, I mean it, Tyler, it's, it's uh, bad. This whole like legal thing, if we're going to look at it. Um, and and compare the apples and oranges way of how the DOJ, even even during Donald Trump's presidency, how they treated people of the two different parties so differently. Because if we contrast this to Hillary Clinton, where James Comey came out, sure, it was an October surprise and people were upset that he was like, oh, she did this and we found this and we found that and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she's set that other girl's hair on fire and this and that. (laughs) But um, we're just we're not going to charge her with anything. But I just thought you guys should know that we found this, you know, Hillary's basement, these servers. Um, All right. That's the end of the press conference and walks away. And everyone's like, wait, (laughs) what? You said all of these things. It was a shocking press conference. Shocking. You said you you have everything there to bring charges and you're just ending the press conference like that's it. Crickets. Yeah. I remember watching that evil giraffe live <laughs> and uh, w- during that press conference. Let me tell you he's something. He's 6'6", six, six, right? I he's, was he's absolutely big. He's huge. a tall man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. He, uh, when he, he basically rewrote the statute. Yes, he <laughs> and, did. And, you know, for, for the purpose of Hillary saying that, saying that, you know, because these, these statutes, they're, they're, they're strict liability statutes, require no specific intent, meaning just the fact that you did it. And as we know, there was, I believe there was a submariner who was prosecuted and sentenced to like six years yes. simply for taking pictures inside the sub unwittingly. You know, he said he didn't know that you couldn't do that um, or whatever the case. But right. I mean, but intent wasn't required. Exactly. He, intent he, was required. He, yeah. And he did this with Hillary. He said he basically misstated the statute in order to vitiate her liability or her, her uh, you know, culpability. And that is just I mean, <laughs> yeah. And then it's just I mean, the corruption again. It's gotten so uh, seeped into this organization since Mueller. And then, you know, of course, I mean, Comey takes over and he's just awful. I mean, I mean and frankly, whether you, whatever you think of Trump, firing James Comey was a great thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, I don't know the Chris you know, Ray is much better, but Tyler, my God. With, with how the fallout from that, we learned about these servers that, you know, Huma Abedin had access to them. She, she was Hillary's personal assistant. Her her baby daddy, okay, ex-husband, but yeah. still baby daddy, Anthony Weiner is probably, you know, conf, you know mixing up his D-picks with whatever was on Hillary's <laughs> server. They bounced up on his computer. And, right. Yeah. And like, we, we know that. However, then you have people like Rudy Giuliani or, or Roger Stone, anybody that's affiliated with Trump, somehow gets busted by the FBI for everything. Meanwhile, anyone related to Hillary Clinton seems to get a free pass. Like nobody, Wiener got in trouble for his D-pick, not because he had access to Hillary's server. Even more shockingly, before Hillary was to be deposed and you know, supposedly questioned, which turned out to be just a softball, I believe run by Peter Strzok, um, a softball deal, they immunized all the people around her. All her immediate aides, you know, I believe it was, uh, gosh, um, 
what his name escapes me, her top sort of uh, attorney fixer. Oh God, I sorry, yeah, the name escapes sorry. me. But the immediate people around her were were given immunity. It's like these are the yes. these are the the accomplices for God's sake. You cannot. How do you do that? All of it. Was these super people weird. are basically should have been charged with her for conspiracy. Um, you know, and and yeah, and the fact that. Uh, um, oh gosh, there's something thought well, that came by the way, in my head. If that was um, Trump, they would have charged those people in order to try oh, to get them to flip on Hillary. That was what they would have done. Right. Exactly. And by the well, way, Strzok well, changed said, it to terms. If you remember, Strzok was the one that basically changed it from what is it, grossly negligent to something else. Grossly negligent being yeah, prosecutable to, uh, as the other one not being. Meaning they moved the goalposts. It was well, well, no, it was changed to uh, yeah, exactly. Well, it was requiring no intent. I forget how they wrote it. They wrote right. it exactly. They crossed it out, and, and specifically, you have evidence of them doing this, like literally crossing it out in the in the draft memo. Yeah, this but, is not even know, a question. I, I think at it this comes point. down to yeah. what I've said before on this show, I believe, which is that I think that when it comes to the DOJ, unfortunately, and our national, you know, the law enforcement complex as it would be now, when when uh, you know Democrats commit crimes. It's just politics, you know. When Republicans do politics, it's crime. And that's exactly the standard. If you compare to everything that's going on today, that's exactly the standard they're operating by. Uh. And, and this is, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a crime, but I, 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 this is something I would repeal in terms of like uh, our election policies and what have you. And, and obviously, your client, all, all, I have to say Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone. <laughs> Roger. Oliver Stone. <laughs> I wish he was my friend. <laughs> Roger is you know, a, a political mastermind, right? Whether no, whether people like him or not, whatever. He's a, a, a political mastermind. He knows how to play the game. He plays it well. However, with with Liz Cheney, do you guys know that that her her campaign coffers had a total of about $15 million? Only less than $400,000 of it came from local sources in Wyoming. $14.5 million came from out of state. And if you follow the out of state money, a lot of it came from Democrat ish. Demo- like, what? Of course. What? 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 What, what is it? What is, well, hearing, what is this world we're in? Hearing Liz Cheney talk about her, whether or not she's going to run for president, should be in the annals of questions nobody's asking. <laughs> you know, answers to questions nobody's asking. <laughs> Honestly, it's like, lady, you have, you are, do you think the Democrats are going to like somehow get on board? Your name is Cheney, honey. Yes. You are the you're Darth Vader S Junior, whatever. Uh, nobody and she. I mean, she. This woman is now homeless and you know, righteously so because she is an awful person. Um, she's deceitful, self-serving, uh, swamp wench, frankly. And it is finally just beautiful to see the Bushies and the Cheney ilk get their comeuppance. And, and amazingly, of course, in their psychopathological, uh, typical manner. She, you know, uh, compares herself to Abraham Lincoln. Yes, so <laughs> the vote, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, even the voters don't matter. You know, it's like, oh, they're wrong. You know, they, they give me a voters break. I mean, seventy percent. Like, shut you your yap that? and get voters, the voters step. are wrong. I'm curious. Give me your take, take Tyler. A, take a hint, lady. You yeah. have to be amazingly shocked, or as shocked as I think we are, to see the day where Democrats are now rehabilitating Dick Cheney. Are rehabilitating yes. Liz Cheney, have rehabilitated oh, George Bush, um, yeah, Junior W. I mean, the I, idea. I, I would say you're headed. I would say you're headed in the wrong direction. If, you're, if that's but your, think about it though. The but they have though. The I mean, opposite, like yeah. Manila made the point. All of that money was coming in from basically Democratic sources. I'm not shocked oh, by that in yeah, the least. Absolutely. We hate Trump. So, I mean, uh, yeah, well, Liz Cheney found out, you know, that she, that frankly her 
her brand of neoconservative, you know, globalist, interventionist, militarist, corporatist, whatever, fascist politics is no longer welcome in the Republican Party. And frankly, thanks very much, I think, above all to Ron Paul, Rand Paul and those, but also Donald Trump. He adopted that. He didn't become a corporatist Republican. And in that, that's the direction the party's moving. And frankly, I think that's the direction that most of the country wants to go. We don't want to be in, involved in the, being the policeman of the world or being the, the meddler with our CIA being this uh, sort of just constantly subversive to other nations. Um, and frankly, to our own at this point, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, and, and that that doesn't sell anymore. Yet the Democrats are embracing it. I mean, you have Joe Biden is the biggest. I mean, he you know, he was just pining and uh, for every type of intervention you can think of in the last you know 50 years. And as uh, Robert Gates said, he's been wrong on every major foreign policy uh, action or, or decision or issue in this country since uh, in a half a century. And he's, he's not getting any better, I don't think, with this Ukraine uh, you know, with what's going on in Ukraine, the, the, the hundreds of billions of dollars go down the tubes, frankly, into this country, which is a corrupt oligarchy, whether regardless of whether you think Russia is doing, you know, being aggressive there. But I mean, I, you know, I think we our country provoked that by p- basically uh, talking about putting Ukraine into NATO. I mean, but we now that's a whole nother issue. But you know, the point being, though, Liz Cheney's politics, uh, like her wicked witchiness, is now dead. As far as I'm concerned, and good riddance. I mean, you know, these people should never have had the influence they did. I think that you had people who were essentially, um, well, I don't know if you know the history of neoconservative. It was, they were basically communists, 1930s and 40s type communists, who were essentially sort of mugged by, by the radicalism of the 1960s left, and then fled supposedly to you know and, and tried to co-opt the Republican Party, and for a period did hold sway with the Bushes being the premier sort of um, people who would take advantage of that, that neoconservative, you know, globalist. But neoconservative is neither neo nor conservative. Um, so it's a misnomer. And I think fortunately now the traditionalist conservatives, uh, libertarians, Ron Paul, Robert Taft, that, that, that sort of thread in the party that really was the Republican Party for a century are now reasserting that party. And I think to great success, and it will be to great success because that is what America wants. Last thing here, um, you brought up the word ilk. You know who made that famous? Sarah Palin. And she's staging a comeback. Really? <laughs> yeah, she was like, all you know, all those people and their ilk. But um, that, oh. that was the first time I'd heard somebody in the, you know, on the on a national stage use that term. And I was like, that's a weird yes, word to use. Yes, no, I, I wasn't aware of that. That's great. That was, a, yeah, it just Kudos to me. her, you know. I'm like, Sarah Palin? I think Palin's she got a ilk. bad, I think she got a bad rap. Uh, well, I personally think well, she got a bad she's rap. She's going to get her I chance mean, again running for the House of Representatives in Alaska. Um, no, so, it's, I think it's a vacant Senate seat because the guy died. It's not Senate. No, it's the guy died. House, I'm almost certain it's House. Seat. I don't um, know. It's, no, she, yeah, she's that. running for she's running for the House, but yeah. she did make it the to guy, the general yeah, the election guy, ballot. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, she she's made it out. I'll tell you though. Uh, yeah, of the primary. She made it through the primary. Yeah, Lisa Murkowski though that that was a that was a terrible fix. First of all, appointed by her father, Frank Murkowski, uh, you know, who was senator for the many years, became governor, and then points his daughter to his own seat. I mean, you know, you want to talk about nepotism run amok. And, and she has just been, frankly, I think um, uh, one of these sort of middle of the road squishes that is worse than the worst of either party, in my opinion, because they'll just sell one or the other out, depending on which way the wind's blowing. And uh, she she and her uh, apparently James O'Keefe came out with this her, and her staff uh, election uh, campaign staff were instrumental in passing this ranked ballot voting, which enabled her to get. Uh, basically less than 
you know, majority, but still survive and beat her next best opponent, uh, you know, for the uh, for the final election, for the general election ballot. So it was trickery and she denied she was involved with it, you know, yeah. made it look like as though she wasn't. But, you know, she was behind it. And this is the extent these people will go to altering how we vote in order to save themselves. Well, ranked choice voting, I have no issue with ranked choice voting. I mean, basically just... You pick the ones. I mean, well, because your top three, or yeah, whatever, your top your three, three or yeah. four. Or whatever. No, I, I, yeah, and in fact, believe me, I pushed for it in Delaware uh, twenty years ago, uh, twenty, yeah, tw- about twenty years ago, roughly, maybe actually about fifteen, eighteen years ago. Anyway, the point is, though, I think that's fine. I mean, but I think when voters need to fully understand how it works, I think it, it appears at first that what they did was take advantage of voter ignorance as to how it's gamed out. You know yeah. what I mean? In other words, that, okay, you don't have to rank, you don't have to put one name down there. People, I think, go in and think they have to rank, you know, they have to put names down. But no, you can vote for just one person if you want. Right. Um, and that that would, you know, eliminate someone like Murkowski if people weren't putting her down a second because they didn't want her At necessarily, right. or they wanted more of the person they're putting first. If they had not put her name down, she wouldn't have gotten those votes. I, but, you know, I don't think they, I think they the were, rules. the voters yeah. were rather, exactly, they were rather ill-educated, and you, but you have this trickery of a, a, corrupt incumbent, you know, I mean, really, honestly, appointed by her father. I mean, how do you justify that? I mean, it's just, honestly, that's just pure, pure nepotistic political uh, dynasty building, you know, and uh, Joe Biden would have done it, they would have done it with his, with uh, Bo back in the day. But, uh, you know, Bo, I think realized, well, I don't want to start a career this way and was smart enough not to do it. And of course he was dead within a few years, but, um, you know, that being said, it doesn't mean that these people don't. I mean, I, there's something wrong with with these positions of power in terms of what these people think they are, how they're treated, and how, you know, what they can get away with. It's the fact that they can just literally create these little mini dynastic hereditary uh, fiefdoms like there is in Alaska. I mean, I this stuff's got to end. Yeah. Term limits for starters, please. Term uh, limits. Yeah. Term limits. Term. We disagree on term limits too. Look, personally, I like ring choice voting. Um, all things <coughs> equal, I like this idea of being able to put in multiple people. But you're right. People do need to know the rules for making that vote set. I just, I keep thinking of a situation like um, Jill Stein, where it's like, it's like, okay, I'm not voting for Hillary Clinton. By the same token, I don't want this other person to win. It becomes that stuff. And so that's kind of the way that stuff breaks down. Um, But Tyler, thank you for this, man. Always appreciate you joining us in these conversations. Thank you guys. Army interests. Have a wonderful... I was going to say, have a wonderful rest of the summer and week. It's beautiful here. I'm sure it's beautiful there in Washington. Uh, we get the cool weather, so enjoy it. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Still Absolutely, swampy. my man. Yeah, it's Still chilly here, here, unfortunately. Swampy. But, <laughs> yeah. but Tyler, yeah. thanks, my man. Army, intru- Army intru- ah, can't get it out. infantry veteran, counselor at law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, extremist in defense of liberty. Um, also, Roger Stone's attorney. And you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan. Tyler. We're going to take your calls when we come back. The number is 202. I don't think we should take a break. We have several callers on on the horn. Let's let's, do this. Let's Let's just go to the callers. All right. So the first one, Brave. No, No, I'm sorry, Tarif. Tarif. What's going on, my man? Thank y'all for taking my call. This is about um, what I heard yesterday on a critical hour. Kevin Muppet was talking about MKUltra. Mint Press News came out with an article yesterday talking about uh, MKUltra. Kurt Kalinrenberg, he uh, found out some research is being done. I mean, U- University of Ottawa um, found out documents on MKUltra. Donna stress led it the uh, in, in, in the investigation. She said basically the African Americans was the most likely to be selected for it, and also given the most drugs in that program. And it goes on saying some other things 
Um, y'all want, I can try to contact Donna Stress or Matt New Eric, Kate Kalenberg, or maybe um, Kellen Malkin, but they can go deep into this subject, you know, like um, <clears throat> True Stream Media that's on YouTube, uh, because it's important to um, expose this. If you, uh, <clears throat> y'all want, I can con- try to contact them, because there's an article by Mint Press News that came out by MK Ultra and how it, it basically messed with black people's minds and, you know, it could explain a lot of things today, you know what I'm saying? If y'all want me to, I can write Dana Stress and some other people. Well, the producers, our, our producers are listening, so they're they're aware. So that's, you don't have to worry about doing their job. So, <laughs> But I appreciate the story pitch. That's always interesting. And, and yeah, we know we know Caleb, so. Yeah, Caleb Malk is cool people. Um, Tarif, thank you, my man. I appreciate it. Let's go to Brave ATL. Brave. Hey, Brave. Calling in early today. What's going on, my man? Hey, good morning, guys. I um, oof, I wanted to call in the other day, but couldn't. Um, oh, that that segment you guys had with uh, Malik and and Robert was uh was really good. Um, one thing, oh, so many things that Rob said, but the the main thing that um that really jumped out at me was when Rob was making the uh was making the um comparison with the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, not a Democratic Party. Apparently, um, is like the greatest of all time. <laughs> Pretty much, that's where he was going with that, right? And the Republican Party has no grasp on reality because they're dealing with, uh, I guess, conspiracy theories. I, I thought that was um, so. I thought that was so uh, funny because when you consider what the Democratic Party really is trying to do, uh, I mean, and not to protect the Republican Party because they, they obviously have their issues, right? Um, but being that I'm a black man, I, 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 I and I, I, I typically have leaned more so. Um, to the left, although I am independent, I just I just find the place that we are in with the Democratic Party to be um, very insulting. And the idea that the Democratic Party um, and this representative for the established Democratic Party would be trying to get across to us or convince us that the Republican Party are the ones that have no grasp on reality, whereas um, the establishment Democratic Party and even the progressives who are supposed to be our saviors um, want us to believe all of these unrealistic, unrational, and just fantasy things. They want us to believe that um, they want us to believe that words can just change, definitions can just change. Uh, yes. To believe that the wokeism. Women and women are men. When he, when he made the when he made the comparison about uh, when he made the point about the, the the Republican Party and them being on some mission of uh, the what is it was it about oh, right bright shiny things is yeah was how Malik framed it. The, the thing with this with the schools and the teachers as if parents I am a parent <laughs> we we raised a bunch of kids right. As if parents are not concerned about what's going on in the schools and what's being taught to our kids and how the kids are being influenced. If you go on, if you go on social media, there are literally teachers who have uh, social media followings who are priding themselves in talking about helping small kids find their uh, sexual identities, not even sexual identities, their gender identities. These things, parents care about these things. Yes. They're still pissed off about what happened with COVID and how and how horribly it was handled, and especially more than anything, losing their jobs for not taking a, a, a shot that did, that has proven to not do any of the things they said they were going to do. I mean, the, the, the CEO for Pfizer caught uh, COVID now. Well, well, the CDC, <laughs> on, on all of that, on, on that note, Brave, we got to stop it right there. However, um, the CDC has quietly walked back their stance on the vaccine and natural immunity. Uh, Walensky now, CDC boss, is saying, oh, we're going to reform the whole damn thing. And, well, and they with, got a report out basically the, saying that they the screwed thing, up royally. Yeah. And with the school thing, 
um, Robert Patillo, he tagged me on on Twitter, um, poking fun, I think, at at DeSantis's idea of bringing in military people to become right. teachers. Um, so uh, I, I think I'm with you on this one, Brave. So I'll, I'll poke around with Patillo and see what he thinks on that. So we will leave that right there. Brave, our friend in ATL, very talented artist. Thank you. Uh, let's head over to Jamar in Connecticut. Hey, guys. Um, well, I'll be quick. I just wanted to uh, talk about how how important that we keep opposing this two-party rule. I know that some people have been seeing, just saying like, that Trump is always saying some really good things right now. It's in the election, but he's all about, about himself. And with Matthew Ho in North Carolina with the Green Party knowledge, um, those are the type of fights that need to keep going on. I had Matthew Ho on my podcast a few times. And I think it's important that we try to get these other third parties uh, more acknowledgement um, it, it, because we need more alternatives instead of having a two-party dictatorship. Jamar, I can't agree with you more on that. Great words. Yeah, can't agree I, I with agree. you more at all. I mean, it's it's tragic. What's I mean, what the Democrat Party used to be, what I thought I was yeah. growing up as a kid. It's just not that party in the 80s anymore. It's just not them anymore. It's this. When I was growing up, I guess I had this idea of what they were. And somewhere along the way, I guess they're going after Sanders got across that they are not what they say they are. Oh, no, my, my political transformation happened much younger than that. But when yeah. I was a kid, it was, you know, we're a staunch working class family. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad was in a union. You know, just we're a union family. And right. that's what the Democrats used to represent. In not that. today. No. Not today. No. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Manila Chan. I want to thank our engineers, our producers. I also want to thank all of you. We will see you bright and early. Thank you, Rumblers. Friday morning. One more day. We made it. It's pre-Friday. <laughs> Back tomorrow morning. You guys have a fantastic day. See you tomorrow. Fault Lines.